0: You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. I'm very pleased to welcome Rod Murray, the godfather of Australian golf podcasting, to the interview chair for today's episode. A self-confessed tabloid hack, Murray's Monday musings for Golf Australia magazine, a weekly can't miss, being certain to provoke and indeed often cajole readers to consider the challenges and opportunities within the wider golfing landscape in a slightly different way, or with a new perspective. Many of these themes are investigated and then teased out in more detail through the good, good podcast vehicle that Marty co-pilots with Messrs Logue and Emmanuel. rod has been podcasting since the days of online audio, which I'm reliably informed appears to be what they were called before the advent of the eponymous Apple iPod. He includes the names Mike Clayton, Jeff Shackleford, John Hogan, Derek Duncan, Connor Lewis and Karen Harding as both collaborators and devotees through the Talking Golf network of podcast publications. I've been fortunate to get to know Rod over the past year. And while it took some time to convince him that people would like to listen to an episode devoted exclusively to him, I really do think that this episode gives us a rare opportunity to get to know one of Australia's most prolific golf media protagonists. Many thanks for tuning in. I really do hope you enjoy this wide-ranging chat with Rodney John. Rod Murray, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast.
1: Uh, I'm very honoured and privileged to have been asked, I must say, Shane.
0: Mate, an appearance for you is long overdue. Um, as, as you know, you're one of the main influences that have motivated me to create uh, the Firm and Fast Podcast in the first place. I, I understand that the Sydney summer has been somewhat inclement. Wondering has it stopped raining yet?
1: Uh, Off and on. It has been the weirdest one I can remember for a long time. What it does mean, though, if you look to the future, at some point in the next year or two, we're going to get a really hot summer, which means all this water that's in the ground now is going to make things grow really, really, really fast. And you know where we're going to be in a few years, Shane? We're going to be back to bushfires like we had a couple of years ago. That's the cycle and the pattern. But no, it's, uh, it's certainly eased off the last few weeks. I know Logue's been scratching his golf itch, which was not possible for a while there when it was pelting down constantly, so...
0: Yeah, I've seen some footage online of retro, retro clothes and watches and so on and so forth and stuff. So, and uh, maybe, um, uh, Ewan Porter, perhaps and uh, Jimmy Manuel. They're, the,
1: they're the cool kids. They formed a bit of a group, and they're kind of the cool kids, and they wear the cool. Um, Angus and Grace go golfing clothing which I've not seen yet but apparently Clates endorses that so they obviously know what they're doing there and they've been travelling around to their eternal credit they've been travelling around to all the public golf courses in Sydney we had Ewan on our podcast a few weeks ago and he told us he'd set himself this mission to play every public golf course in Sydney and there's some not great ones in there, I've got to tell you, Shane. <laughs> so, so, and that's what they've been up to. They've been having these days where they go out and play public golf, which is one of the topics we often talk about on our podcast, as you know, and the importance of it. So putting their T's where their mouth is, so to speak, and good on them for doing it.
0: Yeah, well, look, having welcomed both Logan, Clayton and the Pardo the past mm. year or so, I'm very pleased, as I said, to have you join me on the show. It did take a little convincing, but <laughs> I, I can assure you that myself and, and many of the listeners would like to learn a bit more a bit more about your journey through golf and its myriad forms. Writing, obviously, podcast presenting, golf course architecture epiphanies, perhaps through the years, and. Let's not forget your founding father status of Retro Wednesdays at Mangrove Mountain.
1: (laughs) You're very kind and you've outlined some of my biggest failures there for me, which is great. I'm not super comfortable in this position, Shane, which is why it took some convincing to get me here. I've never been keen on being the guest. I feel like I do too much of espousing my own opinions as a host, let alone being a guest somewhere where it's kind of all about espousing your opinions. So that's the reason for my reticence. Nothing to do with you,
0: who I quite like. Uh, You're very kind, sir. You're very kind. (laughs) You know, in considering today's first question, Rod, I'm compelled to ask you, what's the thing about golf, Rod Murray?
1: Uh, It's such a wanky thing to say. It's a journey. Um, As you're probably going to uh, reveal a bit later, I very almost never play golf anymore, and I don't find myself loving it any less than the years and years and years where it was all I wanted to do was play golf. I think for me... Other people might have this about other sports, but you would have heard me say it a million times. I think golf is unique. And one of the things that I think is really unique about it, it is incredibly cerebral. You can immerse yourself in golf without touching a golf club. Now, I don't think you can do that if you've never touched a golf club or it's unlikely. But if you've had the golf bug and played a lot, which I have done and I know quite a few people like this, you actually don't really need to play anymore to be just as engaged with the game as you always have been. I think you do lose something by not playing on a regular basis, I, and I feel that over the last year or two uh, in some sense. But that, I think, is the thing about golf for me. I'm, what did Palmer say? It's endlessly fascinating, and and it is. I think it's endlessly fascinating. If you're, You can like the clubs, I have some affinity with people who are like well the retro clubs. You can be into modern gear. You can be into the golf swing. You can be into golf course architecture. You can. It's not a great life choice, but you can be a rules type person should you want to and be fascinated with the rules of the game. The writing on the game is probably one of the things I think that keeps it so engaging. Not my own, but others. Uh, there's that. I think it was George Plimpton said, "The smaller the ball, the better the writing." They don't get much smaller than golf, and I think there's some truth to that. It's a it's not universally true, obviously, there's some fabulous sports writing about other sports, but I think it's the, the ability to sort of intellectually, for want of a better term, immerse yourself in the game. Other sports, to me, look very much like they kind of happen, and that's kind of that. Football's quite simple. Soccer is quite simple, or seems to me. Golf's incredibly complex. It's the chess to the checkers that is a lot of mainstream sport. Does that answer the question somewhat?
0: It certainly does. When did golf first appear on Young Rod's Horizon?
1: I reckon I was thinking about this because I don't think about it much. I was, I was probably about 14 or 15, and we have tobacco to thank. I was uh, I was a smoker at school as a student. I think I was in year nine, and one of the school sports that was offered was golf. I was never into sport, never liked sport. We had to play sport. I went to a Catholic school, so I had to play something. So I generally went for cricket in the the summer because there wasn't so much running and sweating and bashing into other people and all that sort of thing, which wasn't my go. So they offered golf and myself and another couple of my mates said, well, this would be great. You go play golf. Well, once you're at the first green, they can't see anymore. You can smoke. So so we picked golf. Nothing to do with the game itself. And I loved it. Maybe not the very first day, but after not many weeks, we used to have school sport on a Thursday afternoon. I, I really loved it. We really, really, really enjoyed it. For all the reasons that we do. Initially, because you're out there with your mates and we could smoke, which we thought was fantastic, but you're out there with your mates having fun and doing stuff on the golf course you probably shouldn't do. But then the game itself kind of captivated me, and I only really thought about this this morning before we started, because I knew you were going to ask this question. I didn't go on with it then. My parents joined me up as a junior member at that local semi-private golf club near where we lived and where, the, where we played uh, each Thursday, and I only sort of lasted a year. I don't recall meeting any other kids. There was nothing to in, There was no incentives to go and play or use the golf course, and I kind of much as I still loved golf. I was fascinated by the game. I really loved it. I had my clubs and all that. never. You really used that membership and kind of fell out of the game. Till I was about eighteen or nineteen, I met Brendan James, who's the editor at Golf Australia magazine here in uh, here in Sydney. I met him at News Limited. We were both copy boys there. I'd known him for a couple of months. Um, didn't know that he didn't know at the time, he not only played golf, he's a very good player, he got down to two, played pennant in Sydney and could really play the game, had played for a long time. And we were on our way to a, they had these summer series concerts in Australia back in the 80s and early 90s called Big Day Out. Lots and lots and lots of headline bands at a big oval and you'd sneak in some booze and you know carry on like teenagers and young people. There'd be loud music and that sort of thing. Music's not really my thing, but it was the sort of thing you'd do when you were young. We were walking to the venue from the train station nearest to it and we walked past a golf course And BJ just said out of nowhere, oh, I haven't played golf for ages. And I said to him, or it might have been the other way around, I said to him, oh, do you play? And he said yes. And that conversation morphed into a round of golf a few days later. And eventually, he's the editor of Golf Australia magazine. I do golf podcasts and write for his magazine. That's where it ended up. But that's kind of where it restarted. Had that not happened, I may have just continued my, at the time, very in-depth research into alcohol, cigarettes, and women.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good. So when and where did you start writing about golf?
1: So I left News Limited in about 93, 94. It was a bit of a lost soul. I think I got a job pouring beer at a Greek-based soccer club here in Australia called Sydney Olympic. I worked in the bar there and trained, Well, that might have been later. And somewhere in there I did training to work at the Sydney Casino, which i did two stints at the casino as a croupier. Uh, the golf, well, of course, one of the great things about being a reporter, but in your trade, it's completely portable. If you've got an interest and you've got some of those skills that we learned at News Limited as uh, cadets, well, you can transfer it to whatever you're interested in. It can be travel writing. It can be, you know, obviously the ones that obviously in, in newspapers, politics and those sort of things. And mine was golf. And so there was a local newspaper, Publication down here in the mid nineties, nineteen ninety five, I think it was, called uh, the Golfer, very creatively titled, um, which was a pretty simple operation. They had an ad salesmen. It was published out of um, Queensland, um, not here in New South Wales, and it just needed to be filled with golf stories. And so, to find golf stories to fill a golf paper, you need the skills that I'd learnt at uh, at newsman. So it wasn't a full time job; it was a sort of a it was kind of a sideline hustle. They would pay you sort of. Not so much freelance rates, but like a retainer to do certain amount of stuff. And that's how I got into golf writing, writing more about. Well, I can remember one of the most memorable things I think I ever did was go to the Australian Junior Girls Championship at Bonnie Doon, well before it was redone. We'd be talking in the mid to late 90s here. And I remember that, you know, and this is where the journey of my interest in other aspects of golf, I guess, started. I remember being struck by the number of dads who were caddying for their daughters. A lot of these girls were between sort of 14 and 17 years old, that kind of age group. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, there might be something special about this game. What are the other things that dads and daughters can do at that age? I don't have children, but I imagine that for a dad, a 14-year-old daughter, that's an awkward kind of age for engagement. Golf offered this amazing thing. Now, not all of it was good. Not all of them had great relations. (laughs) There was a fair few girls crying, obviously, on the course, and there were a few dads who were crying too. But I just thought what an amazing... Is one of the amazing aspects of golf. I guess I started to think about the game a little bit more broadly because, yeah, a, a bit more broadly than just, here's a game where, as Logue calls them, you're a look downer. There's the ball, there's the hole, how many shots did it take you to get in, and that's the sum total of the game. There's nothing wrong with that, but I started to see more than just that, I think.
0: Yeah. so maybe, you know, looking up perhaps and and sort of taking a look at your initial interest in golf course architecture. From from listening to you and speaking with you, I get, I get the feeling that your fascination with golf course architecture is probably indelibly linked with a golfing trip that you took to Ireland, Scotland, and England maybe back in the late 1990s with the aforementioned Brendan James of uh, Golf Australia magazine. Um, will I be correct in this summation?
1: You would be completely correct. Uh, it was almost a spiritual experience. It was 1997. We plan – well, when I say we, I'm a passenger on these things. The big man, BJ, he loves to organise. And this was before the internet, really. He organised this entire trip. I think we played 36 or 37 rounds in 32 days. We had a couple of rest days in there as well where we didn't play. We went to the open. So the whole trip was built around going to the open covering the open, which made it, how can we put it, a tax write-off. So that was nice. But yes, we were both from Sydney. He was a much more advanced golfer than I was. But in Sydney, there's nothing, there's very little, certainly very little accessible that you would call of architectural interest. Sydney's a very, people who would be familiar with Riviera. Sydney could have a Riviera, but we don't. We've got very sort of formulaic golf for the most part in Sydney, yeah, even the clubs that have been revered, a lot of that is changing. We're sort of this lots and lots and lots more golfers have an interest in architecture these days, and so that's to the good. But my experience of golf had been essentially kind of tree lined parkland golf courses, mostly public or semi-private, I um, had a few experiences at some nicer clubs, but they were all essentially kind of the same. and we landed in England, we started our trip. Our first round was at Royal St. George's. We were younger men then so we were pretty hung over in fact bj will hate me telling this story so i must tell it i may even tell it twice just to make sure that he hears it his his very first shot of the trip he's a much better player than me his very first shot of the trip at royal st george's off the first tee was a well it wasn't a shank because he hit it with a driver but it went that far right that it could have been a shank i just remember and he was hung over and not feeling well and not looking great and i just remember i somehow hit the fairway and I was walking down the fairway and I looked across and there he was wandering aimlessly through the tall grasses. we got a couple of guys here called Roy and HG who do a sort of a parody sports program and they had this saying, you know, like a hapless water buffalo wandering through the ponds of life. And that came to me as I watched poor old BJ searching for his, probably a Titleist at the time, um, would have been a Ballada, probably a Titleist 100 or something like that. He was searching for it in the long grass and that was the start of our trip. But the golf, compared to here in Sydney, was confronting. And the initial reaction was, this can't be right. Golf doesn't look like this. You know, you could see right across the whole vision. It's a pretty wild landscape there at Royal St. George's. I mean, it's, not everybody loves Royal St. George's. But for us, the comparison from Royal St. George's to, I don't know, pick a course in Sydney that people sort of you know, Concord, Kalara, You know, those North Shore sorts of courses or even some of the courses in the East, probably a bit more like St. Michael's than New South Wales, but it was a revelation. I didn't know golf could look like that and be like that. And at first, I don't think I particularly liked it. It was like, no, this is is too much. I don't, where's all the nice super green grass and all the pleasantries and the condition and all the things that you're used to. And then it just, obviously it happens. By the time we got to St. Andrews, which was a couple of weeks into the trip from memory, St. Andrews really was the epiphany moment that put it all together. We'd played Royal Sinkports and Princes, still two of the most memorable days, I think, of golf for me, um, coming from Sydney. But when we got to St. Andrews, it had all of that and that wild sort of architecture and that sporty sort of golf, but it had the feel. I mean, it's the old course. You, you feel it. If you're a golfer, I think you feel it. It's, an almost, it's almost embarrassing to admit, but it's almost a spiritual experience to go to the old course, I think, for the first time. And to stand and feel inadequate with a golf club on that land and think, I shouldn't be here. You know, this is the this is where the greats of the game have performed the greatest feats. And then to realise actually, yeah, I should be here. Everybody should be here. And on Sundays everybody is. Throwing frisbees and playing cricket and, you know, kids building sandcastles in the bunkers. It's taken a long time to come to the realisation of what it was about the old course, but that's what it is. It's It's golf in its place where it belongs. We get it so wrong with golf so often outside of, and if you look to the old course, that's what golf could and should be. It's part of where it is. It's not about, and the look down part of it is part of it. Of course, I birdied the road hole. I will tell that story again too before, (laughs) but I birdied the road hole and I will, it's an extraordinary thing to have happened to a hapless water buffalo like me wandering aimlessly through the ponds of life. But that's part of it, but it's so, so much more than that, um, the old course. And so it was a revelation and an almost spiritual experience. And that was, it really was an epiphany. It was a moment of like, wow, this is what golf should be. Uh, and it's not what golf is in so many places. And it's really not what golf is in most parts of Sydney. It certainly wasn't back then at the time.
0: Where else did you see? <sighs>
1: BJ could run you through the whole list, I'm sure. In
0: fact, he still
1: has the giant A3 size. You remember the cardboard sheets you used to get to do your projects on for school when you were in primary school? He had one of those rolled up in a canister. And each evening, uh, wherever we were staying, he'd roll it out and he'd fill out the scores of who had what. We had a match play that went for the, the whole thing. People, did, He wrote a great series for the magazine about the trip. And people didn't believe it. It really did come down to the last couple of holes of the trip before the match was decided. You know, we were handicapping and that sort of stuff. So he would fill that out. Uh, where else did we see? I am I will miss places for sure, but we played a lot of the hits in England. We did Birkdale, Litham. God, name some courses for because I'm going to forget. We did England, Scotland and Ireland. So we did sort of in the South of England, we did Princes, Sink Ports, Royal St. George's obviously. Uh, Litham, Liverpool, the yeah. um, Burkdale, uh, In Ireland, we did La Hinch, Bally Bunyan, mount juliet which was a diversion from what we had been seeing it was uh it was something different uh port marnock, port marnock yeah
0: royal county down
1: no we didn't do Royal County. no we didn't because we didn't go north we didn't go to northern no, we didn't go north all right it was marching season and we were told ah, by yes. the we were told by the hire car people that it wouldn't be a good idea to take the car with the english plates north of the border I think it was it was It was something along those lines so that we hadn't put, factored that into the trip we didn't go we didn't go north um, Tralee Waterville mm-hmm. um, what's the one where the crazy guy owned the motor he had the, had the giant golf ball he had a golf ball from every person including the secret Service. every person who'd stayed there it was his name Michael what's um,
0: European club
1: Pat Roddy no you? no no the European club no. I'm not even sure if it was was it built then no Kil, uh, Kilkenny not Kilkenny um started with a K. At the K Club. No, no, no. It wasn't the K. We didn't play there either. No, 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 no. It'll come to me later. Loads. Now, I've now forgotten. I wish BJ was here or that he was awake so that I could text him and he would no doubt send me the, uh, the comprehensive list. They were known courses because, of course, from Australia then, mm. and this is one of the things that happened on that trip, everywhere we went, you know, we'd play, for example, the Hinch during the day, and that night we'd be sitting in a bar or a restaurant somewhere in town and people go, oh, you're from Australia. What are you doing? Oh, we're playing golf. Wherever you play, we play the Hinch. Oh, it's not bad. But the place down the road here is way better. Of course, you'd never heard of it. Well, we didn't have the internet then. So you didn't know about these sort of hidden gems that hung off the name courses. So we were on a rotation of pretty much name golf courses. BJ had a book by Donald Steele, which uh-huh. was a – directory of courses I think in the UK and we picked a couple out of there but for the most part and when you come, as you know when you've come to Australia, you know how long it takes to get here (laughs) if you have four weeks and I didn't know it at the time, it was my only time to go to the UK and play golf you kind of want to do the hits don't you? I would probably do it differently now but if you've only got that one shot and someone said, yeah, oh, this place down the road from the Hinch is better than Le Hinch. You go, yeah, maybe it is, but it's not the Hinch. So I'm going to play Le Hinch. That's what I'm going to do. So that, there was an element of that about it as well. You know, we didn't have access to information about other courses. So it was, yeah, it was a, it was a series of the hits, I guess. Um, and just joyous, all of it joyous. What was, one of the really interesting things I felt about the trip over there was the difference in culture and attitude between England and Ireland and Scotland. So almost all of the places we went to in England, so we played at Wentworth, for example, you you had to be on your best behaviour there and watch your P's and Q's and all that sort of stuff. There was very much a feeling of you were lucky that they were letting you play there. In Ireland in particular, I found most of the places, they were staggered that you'd be from the other side of the world and want to play at their humble little golf course like La Hinch or they couldn't wait to get you out there and tell you all about the course and welcome with open arms and... The pride and the, the joy that people would be interested in their facility was amazing. Less of that in Scotland, but incredibly friendly and, yes, please, come and experience. This is wonderful. We want you to experience what we have here, which was very much different to, I think, England and, I don't know about the rest of your clubs system over there, in Australia, I think we've got more of the English model, as I do think they do in America. Broadly, golf and golfers are exclusionary. That would be overstating the sense of what I got from England, but not by a lot. There's much more of a feeling of trying to exclude people. You know, We have this ritzy club. You need to meet these criteria to be a member, be they financial or whatever else they might be, as opposed to the sense that I got in, in Ireland and in particular Scotland, which was, hey, come and enjoy it. You know? Come and be a part of it. We welcome you. Now, it's actually quite a, quite a big difference. I think it's had a real impact on the game outside of Scotland.
0: I blame the English.
1: They exported the attitude with the game.
0: (laughs) When you got back home after your post-St. Andrews epiphany, how did you sort of uh, satisfy that new interest, shall we say? Uh, Well, you
1: kind of can't physically for the most part in Sydney. Um, Melbourne's probably got a lot more to offer in terms of golf course architecture. I spent quite a bit of time just being disappointed, to be honest with you, as a golfer. Very hard to have gone and had that and then come back and enjoy the golf aspect of golf in Sydney. I was never a member at a club in Sydney. I just used to play, sort of work, and we'd go and do course reviews and those sorts of things. So I never had a handicap or any of that sort of stuff until sort of much later, uh, sort of mid two thousands before I joined a club for the first time, which wasn't in Sydney. It was humble little Mangrove Mountain, as you <laughs> mentioned in the intro there. Uh, so there was a lot of just sort of disappointment. I suppose that golf became... BJ and I did a lot of trips around that time. We were young. We were single. Um, we're not particularly attractive. So it's kind of, <laughs> what are you going to do? So we would go to the Gold Coast. Um, we did a couple of uh, regional sort of trips in the car where we'd do three or 4,000 Ks over the course of a week and just play a whole bunch of golf courses down on the border of New South Wales and Victoria around the Murray region and those sorts of things. But the golf aspect, the golf course architecture aspect much more a reading thing, I think. And even then, that was harder than now. Now, if you've got an interest in golf course architecture, one of the wonderful things the internet has done is created this entire pool. You, could, you couldn't you could read all the golf course architecture stuff that's been published since sort of the mid-2000s that's online, places like Golf Club Atlas, Jeff Shackelford's website, uh, what the fried egg do uh, with all of their architecture. None of that. Certainly not a discussion. You could buy books and you could read pieces in magazines. It was very much one-way communication. This discussion about golf course architecture sort of didn't really exist. And it's probably still true today. I think in most golf clubs, if you've got a golf course architecture interest and you meet somebody else who has a golf course architecture interest, you'd yell snap because the chances of there being two of you within one club, certainly back in the mid-2000s, were pretty slim. Most golfers don't really have an interest in the subject and some have a a real anti-bias again (laughs) you're snobs i'm not interested in golf course architecture and all that sort of stuff so so how did i sort of satisfy it uh, wasn't easy we went i went to bumboogle dunes for the first time in probably about when did it open i think it opened in 2004 would have been not long after that not long after it opened and this is actually how i ended up meeting mike clayton of whom I was quite a fanboy because I would read his stuff in the magazines about golf course architecture and it would sort of hit nerves. And after we'd been to Barm and I was blown away by Barm I hadn't seen anything like it in Australia. I had not played, in fact, I still not played much golf on the sand belt of Melbourne. I've only played Royal Melbourne, I think, once, maybe twice. Never played the composite course there. I think I've only played Victoria once, Huntingdale. Never played Kingston Heath. played Metropolitan. Never played Peninsula Kingswood. So I haven't got great sort of experiences down on the sand. But I've been there a lot and walked all those courses at various tournaments and whatnot, but not played them much. But we went, went to Barboogle Juniors for a first trip and was just blown away by it, as most people are. And it must have been a couple of months later, there was a tournament at Concord. It might have been the New South Wales Open. And Clates was playing. And, of course, I thought Clates was a, a hero, a superstar. And I saw him on the practice screen. And I was literally shaking. I was so nervous. But I thought, I've got to go and say to this guy, just love Barn Boogle Junes. What you and Tom Doak did there is just really special, you know, and you should be told that at every opportunity. That was the first time I ever met Clates. I'm sure I made a bumbling fool of myself <laughs> trying to sort of say all that. And it would have been a year or two later that I kind of then got to know him through otherwise, I had him as a guest on my very early podcast I did around that time, sort of 2001 to. I can't remember when I first started Talking Golf in 2005, something like that, Uh, then came to know him after that. But, yeah, so that was sort of how that happened. Um, And, yeah, just talk. So with my podcast with Talking Golf that I started way back then, I did quite a bit of architecture stuff. I remember interviewing Ben Crenshaw and Tom Doak on that Talking Golf show, and that would have been 2002, 2003, both of them, long before you sort of started to see them bob up. You'd only read about these guys, and only if you knew where to go looking. And that's, I guess, how I satisfied, how I still satisfy, for the most part, my interest in golf course architecture. Because I don't have the golf skills to really appreciate golf course architecture. (laughs) Speaking of Clates and and Barnbougal Dunes, I must tell this story because it's one of the more remarkable stories. I had the extraordinary pleasure to play about 12 or 14 holes at Barnbougal Dunes, the Dunes course with Clates. We organised a state of the game architecture tour to Barnbougal Dunes. And we came back from the Lost Farm course one afternoon and Clates goes, there's plenty of light, let's grab the clubs and go and have a hit. And I was like... Okay, wow, well, this is embarrassing, but it's not an opportunity I'm going to miss. So we're playing the fifteenth hole at Barnburgel Dunes, which it's a short par four, huge sand dune on the left, and the wind blowing off the water there on the right. As the wind was howling. Anyway, Clate says to us, <laughs> "You see that little sort of knob in the fairway there?" As only Clate can. Yeah, 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 up on the right, right, on the right hand side. He said, "Yeah." Well, just over the top of that, he said, "There's a flat spot that's a perfect angle to the green." <laughs> He's like, that's what you want to aim for. And he pulls out a drive, and the wind's howling. And he just pops this ball into this spot that when we get up there and walk around the gym, it turns out to be about the size of a full-size snooker table. And it is perfect. It's flat. There's not a divot there. And, of course, Clates takes no interest in his own (laughs) extraordinary shot that he's just played. All he's saying, see, no one hits it here. No divots. No one even knows it's here. They can't. (laughs) How did you do that, Clates? It's extraordinary. And he was... No, it was, what, three or four years ago, so you know, well into his late 50s and just an ex- and to watch him play was, um, most people will never get the chance to play with the tour player, but Clates has made a living playing golf for the best part of 30 years. It's an extraordinary thing to see up close. And he's not a power guy. It's not like watching Rahm or McIlroy or Scott or any of those amazing things where the ball just fizzes and takes off. But what an extraordinary thing to watch up close, just a beautifully constructed golf game like what Clates had. That was one of probably the highlights of my golf playing career ever. But, yeah, typical Clates. Yeah, see that, Juno? Just over the top of that, there's a flat spot. Nobody knows about <laughs> Clates. You are one of a kind, my friend. <laughs>
0: Magnificent. He plays every day, yeah?
1: I think so, pretty much most days. If he's not playing golf, he'll be walking a golf course. He's caddying for Oliver Smiley this week at the New Zealand Open. He's an extraordinary character. We won't appreciate Clates until we're long gone. People will look back at his writings a bit like they do with Mackenzie and say, why didn't we listen to this guy? Why didn't we listen to him more? I've been with him at more than one Australian Open where he's caddied for either Elvis Smiley or if it's the women's Open, he'll caddied for suo And he'll go out in the morning, hit off at 6.30, caddy 18 holes in jeans in 35, 40-degree heat sometimes. He'll come in, have a couple of uh, – maybe a cup of tea, some water, maybe a snack, and he'll say, oh, come on, let's go out. And he'll go out and walk 18, another 18 holes with a player that he wants to have a look at. And – I think it's a question you've probably got for later on, but one of life's great joys if you're a golfer is to walk and spectate at a tournament with Clates because the commentary is not safe for work, but it's an insight that is just extraordinary. He has an amazing mind and an amazing mind for golf, but an amazing mind beyond that. The thing I like most about Clates is he's he's a golf geek, but his interests and his tastes and his... His intellectual hunger is way broader than just golf. And he brings a lot of that outside thinking into the way he thinks about golf. And I'm an unashamed and unabashed fan of Clates and always have been.
0: Tell me a little about the, the genesis of the State of the Game podcast yourself, uh, Clates and Jeff Shackelford. Well, originally
1: it was also John Huggin, and it started at the 2011 Presidents' Cup. And I had had at that time various stages each of those guys on the talk and golf podcast, and I used to do used to do a live broadcast with that on a thing called Blog Talk Radio, really only for my own sort of benefit. But I would call on all of them quite often to talk about you know the week's golf news and uh, all sorts of stuff. so that all we all kind of they all sort of knew each other as well independently, but. It was just everyone was going to be at the 2011 President's Cup. So I was like, right, oh, we better organise to go and, you know, catch up at the President's Cup. So we were sitting around a table in the media centre at the President's Cup at Royal Melbourne in 2011. And uh, so I, I don't know who it was. It might have been Huggy. It might have been Shaq. It might have been me. I doubt it would have been me. I wouldn't have been bold enough to suggest that these three guys give their time to do a regular <laughs> podcast with all of them on it. But the idea sort of followed. It said, look, we really should do something. We were talking, if I recall, we were talking about. Something along the lines of, you know, how do you educate the golfing public without talking down to them about some of these issues? We were on an architecture high, all of us, because we're sitting at Royal Melbourne. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was, it's just such a special place. And it was born out, I don't know who eventually said it, but it was like, we should do a podcast. So I had the technical skills to make it happen where, uh, what, 12 years down the track, Clates still doesn't have the microphone skills to do it properly, yet his contribution is still worthwhile. And so we did, and originally it was going to be quite a regular thing as you know, and tough to organise. I and mean, we had three time zones in play. I'm in Sydney, Clates is in Melbourne, Shaq's in LA and Huggy was in Scotland. So it was, it was awkward always to get all of them together. It's bad enough when you work across two times. It's early morning here, it's late evening for you. So it's doable, but it's not that simple. Particularly if people have got families and that sort of thing. Not everybody appreciates, you know, Bob sitting off in the room talking about golf at eight thirty at night while the family's sort of having dinner and whatnot. So it was a bit awkward. And then there was some tension between Huggy and Shaq in particular, and Huggy decided he didn't want to be part of the the state of the game anymore, which is fine. I uh, still still good mates with Huggy. Still swap roles with him on a podcast that we do for Golf Australia magazine called The Thing About Golf. And we just continued on. So as most people will know, I've been abused more. People have stopped abusing us on Twitter. They did that for a while of, you know, when's the next episode? What are you guys doing? It's quite sporadic. It could have been if we were smarter or that way inclined. This is another media thing. Journos should not run media businesses because (laughs) the skills required to be a journo and the skills required to run a business, as I'm finding out, are very, very, very different. It could have been what No Laying Up and The Fried Egg have become, I think. It was kind of the first of that type of golf content, state of the game. We started in 2011. I'm not sure when those others started. I would think probably 2014, 15, 16. They too grew organically, which is interesting, out of something smaller. I mean, Andy started his newsletter, which eventually turned into what is now a podcast and a network of podcasts, uh, hugely popular. No Laying Up guys were the same. I think they just had a Twitter account to start. And they all kind of found each other, as Shackelford and Clates and Huggy and I had. And they've built quite significant media businesses. But we never had the skills for doing the media business. And just you've only got to look at the haphazard nature of the episode releases to see if that's never never going to be a sensible business model. And not to mention the fact that on our very first episode, Clates put the boot into Club Car Car from memory. It's like, well, there's one sponsor that's just potential sponsor straight off the list. And that's, I think, as it should be. I'm quite... Glad that state of the game is like that. It happens now when it kind of has to. Clates will fire off an email to me and Shaq and say, "Oh, we've got to talk. We're going to have an episode. We've got to talk about this." Or Shaq might do the same, or I might do the same, and then a week or two later. We go but it's which is not a knock on. This is how media works. But once you become a media business, as opposed to just sitting around talking about the game as you and I are doing now, things change. If you've got sponsors, things change, whether you want them to or not. That changes things. It changes the nature of the content that you cover, changes the way you cover it. It has to because you're then in a relationship, you're in a a business relationship with entities that have an interest in what it is you're doing and saying on your show. We don't have that at state of the game at all. Now, there are potential knock-on effects. I work at other organisations as well And things that are set on State of the Game, it hasn't happened, but it wouldn't be beyond the realms of possibility for something that gets set on State of the Game to cause a problem for, for example, Golf Australia magazine. Hasn't happened, as I said, but there's a freedom about State of the Game. The game's too important not to have that sort of commentary as well. I mean, I don't pretend to be a martyr and it's some kind of incredible responsibility, but it is important. And there's more of it now, which is good. Lots of other people are doing it. You're doing it in a way with this Firm and Fast podcast. I mean, all talks to the good of the game. But it's important that there be places where people can speak openly and freely about important issues. It's legitimate to criticise stuff about the game. It's legitimate to criticise manufacturers. It's legitimate to criticise us in the media as well. These things don't have to be binary. I see that, you know, there's plenty of stuff I've got wrong over time and... Uh, It's important that you be able to talk about that. And I feel like State of a Game is one of those places where we can talk about that, if that makes sense.
0: It does. Uh, I guess going back to the Talking Golf Network, as it were, and I'm sure some listeners listen to uh, Connor Lewis on the uh, Talking History Golf podcast, I believe... We have Rod, Murray, and Adrian Logue to thank for, uh, <laughs> in, some, in some small way. For Connor. Uh, <laughs>
1: for Connor. Yeah, that's right. He was nothing when I found him, and look at him now. He'd be nothing if I dump him again. No. We had Connor come on the I Seek Golf podcast that we did for a while. I Seek Golf was a, an offshoot. Oh, that's, a, that's a long story. But Logue and I met at a place called Golf Link, which is the handicap administrator here in Australia. And the way the handicapping system was set up in Australia or the administration of it and the way people could access their handicaps was through a, a third-party company called GolfLink. Golf Australia, the governing body, didn't take it on themselves, which in hindsight turned out to be a really stupid decision. But for all sorts of reasons at the time, there were clubs in Australia who refused to take part in the online handicapping system when it became a thing in the early 2000s. They didn't like the privacy angle of it, etc. So Golf Australia were looking to distance themselves from having... All of that information and whatnot. So it was a third-party thing, and there was a company called Golf Link that did all of that. Logue's background is computers and you know that whole handicapping system. That's how he ended up there. I ended up there because, of course, the Golf Link page is the most viewed golf web page in Australia because people go there to check their handicaps, and so of course it wasn't long before somebody said, "Hey." If we could capture them for a bit of time, not just have them check their handicap and then go away, if we could keep them here for a bit of time, there's money to be made out of that. We can sell ads around editorial content and whatnot. So I started working at Golf Link because that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to have editorial content. And that's where I met Logue. Uh, and as there was, it became fairly clear that Golf Link was going to go back to Golf Australia. They were doing a deal that. Golf Australia would take it back in house, and that Golf Link would just be administrators. And that they'd purchased independently a separate website which had been very popular in Australia for a long time called iSeek Golf, predominantly a Tea Times and Forum sort of a site. So we all started to then work for iSeek Golf instead of Golf Link. And I could sort of see the writing on the wall, and it was my attempt <laughs> to my, remain there. Was I said to log who was, you know, in my eyes quite senior at the company said, we should start a podcast talking about golf. I thought, this would be my way to hang on. They're not gonna take one of their senior people and take the podcast off him. So we started a podcast at iseek Golf called the iseek Golf Podcast because creativity's always been our strong suit, as you can imagine. And we had Connor on that podcast. It was actually pretty popular. It was the forerunner to the good good golf podcast, which we do now. We essentially just when iseek Golf was sold off, we just started a new podcast <laughs> doing the same thing. So we yes, we had Connor on the show and Anybody who's listened to the Talking Golf History podcast will know he is a fabulous talker, as in he doesn't stop talking. He's a passionate, passionate uh, history buff, golf history buff, and he really knows his stuff, and he presents it in a way that is, in fact, even if you're not particularly interested in history, we, we assume history to be very dry and uninteresting, and he does present it in a way that's not that And so I just suggested to him after we'd recorded the episode, you you should probably start. So I'm thinking about starting this network of golf podcasts. You you should do a history podcast for that. Here we are. And the Talking Golf History podcast of all the podcasts on the Talking Golf Network is probably, it'll be neck and neck as the the most popular with State of the Game in terms of the number of downloads it does. It's quite remarkable the following that he has gathered around him. you know he's got the Twitter account that at the Society of Golf Historians and all of that sort of stuff. But yes, yeah, so that's that's sort of how the the Connor Lewis monster was born was uh, out of an I yeah. Golf podcast episode.
0: Yeah, I mean maybe going back to, to the Mike Clayton Appreciation Society, <laughs> any opportunity you have to get him on, just get him on ac- across the board. You know he's he's he strikes me. I know Derek Duncan, I think called him at one point the conscience of golf. <laughs> You know, furthering the traditions of Von Neide and Thompson, and, you know, nurturing the game one golfer at a time, he really is a force in nature, isn't
1: he? He's cut of a mould that's rare. Uh, In fact, you touched on Derek there. Derek's Feed the Ball podcast is one of my favourites. And one of the reasons it's one of my favourites is because he does by far the greatest introductions of all time. I've been embarrassed and humbled by the preparation you've done for this podcast. And I was, I've been embarrassed and humbled by the effort and time that he puts into crafting magnificent introductions for people. And you're right, he did say that about Clates and it was fantastic. But all of his intros are great, Derek, and his, his podcast is fantastic. Yeah, I said it before, I, I really don't think we'll appreciate Clates and his contribution to the game. It's very hard to in the moment. There's so much talk and activity and heat around all of these topics. Even after years of knowing him, he staggers me with how simply he can put things into perspective. I'll wrestle with notions about distance and all the different stakeholders. And then he'll just say something that's like, yeah, you're right. We're just overcomplicating this ridiculously and unnecessarily. Um, He really is. If you're not familiar with Mike Clayton, he has his detractors and he's not always right. One of the things I like about Clates is he knows he's not always right and he's more than happy for you to talk him around to a position that he doesn't hold if you can convince him that it makes more sense than the position he does. He also doesn't pretend to know about things that he doesn't know about, which is a trap, I think, for most of us. I'm guilty of it sometimes. You know, you pretend like you must know a bit about this because you're expected to. He doesn't fall into that. He's got his topics. He writes beautifully. He really does. He's quite a gifted writer and an extraordinary player. He just brings a perspective. I mean it would be he would be embarrassed if you were to compare him to Thompson and I wouldn't do it in that way. Thompson was a, a one-off. But he's in that mold. I think Matt Goggin is in that mold. They're they're professional golfers, but their contribution to the game ultimately will not be their playing legacy or career. It's going to be something much bigger than that. Even if you don't like Clates, you can learn something from him, and he's, just, and he's very funny, I remember, <laughs> we were t- I think we were, on the, we were on the left-hand side of the 16th hole, of par five at Royal Sydney at the Australian Open a few years ago, and Clates was sitting in a golf cart with Andrew Langford-Jones, who was the r- famous rules official, who I must get on the thing about golf actually, for many years here in Australia, so Langers is a legend, everybody knows Langers,
0: he would have given rulings both for and against Clates a bunch of times over the, the course of his career. He he was he was tournament director of the Australian Masters when uh, Tiger won before he, he crashed into the fire hydrant. A little later, wasn't he?
1: Oh, I, I don't. Think so. uh, don't know if he's ever been tournament director. He's always been a PGA. Guy. I'll look into that. It might be he would have been there for sure. He would have been there for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're, s- <laughs> we're sitting there, and th- something come about golf course architecture, and and I think well, I said something to Clive so like you know. Um, how do you deal with all these, these idiots talking about golf course architecture? He says, hey, I just don't talk to them. And Langer said, you talk to me? And Clayton's quick as a flash just said, yeah, but not about golf course architecture. <laughs> it was just the, the smoothest cutting off at the knees you'd ever encountered. Just just whoosh, done. You wouldn't have even noticed until your legs fell off. Oh, wow, he's just cut off my knees there. Quite remarkable. And there's a thousand of those stories with Clates. He is he is priceless. But I, I you know, I, I dearly love him as a friend, and I'm really proud that I, I think I can count him as a friend. Um, but his contribution in golf is hugely important. I think hugely important.
0: Other than Clates, obviously as as as, as a favourite guest, are there any any others that jump out to you as favourites over the years?
1: I always enjoy Huggy because I often don't agree with his position um, on stuff. I never, like, have the polar opposite thing, but he's always got a perspective that I sort of don't think of. So Huggy's always a great guest. He's a good talker. He's a curmudgeon, which is always fantastic. Just won the, the uh, Nicholas Award. So, that's, yeah. And the fabulous thing about that, and I can't wait to tell him the next time I talk to him, is it proves that that award is not a popularity contest. <laughs> because if it was, Huggy wouldn't have won it. He's not in the business to make friends, which is what I love about Huggy. Uh, and so I think he's always, always good. He's got no interest in being friends with the players, which is as it should be, nor am I. If you happen to become friends with the players, so be it, but it's not your job. You have to write critically about these people, which can be difficult if they become friends. I think Clates once wrote something about Jeff Ogilvy, which I thought was magnificent, because the two of them are fabulous, friends. They're really firm friends. You know, there's a really great relationship between Ogilvy and Clates. And Clates uh, had to write something. It wasn't critical, but it was... Wouldn't have been easy to write about a friend. And Clates did it, did it beautifully. Uh, other guests that I really like. There's been, there's been so many. Whenever I'm talking to people, I find them the most interesting person in the world on the podcast. Uh, that sounds sort of cliche and nonsense, but it's not. Once we start to talk about a topic, I really get into it. My brain fires and starts to turn over. If you were to say to me before the interview, this is going to be amazing and interesting, i will be like, really? I can't imagine what we're even going to talk about. But once you start to talk to people... That's when things get interesting. People are interesting. They always surprise you. Conversations always take turns that you don't expect. One of the things that – well, you'll probably listen, but cut this bit out for him only and let the rest of the audience – one of the things I really like about Logue is he's such an interesting and different thinker. He always says something which makes me stop and sit back and think – the classic one, we talked about the golf course at the Olympics – and his opening gambit for his sort of, you know, <laughs> about the golf course was, well, if you ask a child to draw a dog, <laughs> like, what, where, where is this going? And, of course, he then <laughs> makes the point that a child will draw something that, you know, is quite obviously a dog to anyone He said, well, if you ask a child to draw a golf course, they draw something that looked like Kasuma Gaseki, I think it was called. The point being that it was just kind of a – not cookie cutter, but it's a very golf-looking sort of golf course, nothing architecturally outstanding. It was a brilliant way to make the point. But exactly that, you can't do anything but when he opens with – if you ask the child to draw a picture of a dog, it's like, what has this got to do with golf in the Olympics? But that's what appeals to me so much about like he's a really interesting and deep thinker uh, about stuff. So I probably enjoy doing the show with him as much as anything, the Good Good podcast, as much as the guests. Uh, Meg McLaren is clearly uh, a favourite, both when she's been on Good Good, but I really enjoyed the chat I had with her on The Thing About Golf, which is a much longer form one-on-one interview show. Even more than all of that, though, I've really enjoyed – Meg is one that I might consider not a close friend, but a friend. Professional golf has become sort of a friend because she's just such a a thinker and an interesting – uh, young woman, we've had some great chats. She's been out to Australia quite a bit with the Ladies European Tour, and we always sort of catch up and sit down and have a coffee. And I DM with her on Twitter a bit. She's a really impressive young woman. I really enjoy just talking to her because she's intelligent, thoughtful, articulate. Looks at things in a way that you maybe don't expect, um, and has taken on a role, probably partly accidentally, as sort of a champion of of something that really does distract her attention from what it is she's trying to do, which is be the best golfer she can be. She's become this spokesperson for it's calmed down these days. But for a year or two there, you know, Meg McLaren was just like, she's the equal pay girl because she'd sent out this one tweet at one point. But she took all that on. Her blogs are amazing. If you haven't read her writing, her review of the 2019 Masters when Tiger won, hands down the best review that I read about that tournament. Uh, It wasn't, you know... Journalistically, it didn't have all the who, what, when, where, how and why, but as a piece of writing about that event and what unfolded, I sent it to Kari Webb recently and she just sent back a note that just said, wow. <laughs> she hadn't read it at the time. She just said, wow. And that's, that's right. So Meg's special, bit like Clay, she has a special gift for writing. Uh, as well as playing, so I always enjoy talking to her. I don't know, it's hard to have sort of favourites. Your favourite, it's a bit like Gary Player, you know, when he sort of talked about love slow greens and then the next week I love fast greens. You've got to love whatever it is that you're doing that week and you've got to love that guest, whoever it is, that you've got on that week to have a good, interesting sort of discussion with them. And we tend to get, we pick our guests fairly carefully. You know, you, the worst kind of guest is the one who, as I'm proving not to be, just gives one line responses or doesn't have much to say. It's why golf pros are often not great interviews. They're so careful about what they say publicly and understandably so <clears throat> that they end up saying nothing. And that's, so we don't do much of that sort of stuff, but the issues I think we talk about, are uh, and we never talk about you know, how to fix your slice or stop three putting. Or, when you tell people that don't play golf, Oh, you know, what do you do? Oh, I've got a golf podcast. Like, Oh, all right. You know, it's all about tips. And then, no, it's got nothing to do with that. It's, it's about gender politics and golf's broader role in the community, <laughs> you know, why public golf is so important, and it's about all of those things, and, and why golf course architecture is important, why golf can be much more than just a game for so many people. Nothing to do with how to play it, because frankly, none of us are qualified to make any comment about that. Even Clayts reckons he's not qualified to comment on people's golf swings, which I was staggered to hear when he revealed that on, uh, on an episode once. So... I don't know. Go on, Look, if people are interested, go and listen to all of the episodes. That's the best thing you can do. There wouldn't be more than, what, a couple hundred hours there, Shane?
0: The good news is that the iSeq back catalogue is still there on Spotify. Is so. it? Oh, there you go. There's some yeah. really good stuff
1: on there. Andrew Thompson, we had on. He was fabulous. We had him on the iSeq Golf podcast. He would have been one of our last interviews on there, Peter Thompson's son. And he was fantastic. Um, really interesting to listen to. Who else did we did we did a few in the ice seek days? We had Brandel Chambly. Yeah, we did have Brandel on there, um, and he's you know Brandel's Brandel. I'm not a. He's a clearly intelligent bloke, and he knows golf and whatnot. But I'm not uh, I'm not in line with many of his views on some of the I think what are more the more important elements of the game. I find that uh, you you might have a thought about this. It feels to me like America particularly. it's such a big place. Things like space and how much room golf courses take up and the environmental impact of them just seems to wash over people in America. It's just, no, that's fine. There's plenty of space. Why wouldn't you have huge golf courses that were 8,000 yards long? What's the problem with that? The way Australia lives, you know, all around the coast with this huge empty bit in the middle and, you know, the urban environments, it just doesn't work here in Australia. I feel like talk about the distance debate a lot of that's part of it at amateur golf level the distance is a problem yeah? 20 markers are hitting the ball further and further off the golf course than they ever used to and it's an issue I don't feel like a lot of people in America feel the same way maybe it's people who are into golf they just feel like that's fine just build a bigger golf course that's no, just not possible in a lot of places here in, in Australia and I imagine the same is true for Ireland
0: No, no for sure and you know the the, the, the improvement in technology has in many places here, um, much like in, in in some of your best golf courses, I mean the the the, the golf course has been extended to the not quite to the the bar or the back wall, not, but pretty not much far off. That yeah, far. Not far off. You know, so so I I think the issue with the not the issue, but in a, in answering your question, um, most Americans think bigger is better. And they also don't see past their own borders. God love them. But, I mean, it's a a big market and uh, all three or four hundred million of them. So, so, you know, it's just a function. There's a why would you element. It is there.
1: And and we in Australia often complain about this. Oh, you know, their players, they never travel. They never come to Australia and play. Well, I'll tell you what. if If you took America and transposed it down here to Australia, none of our players would travel either. Why would you? If you had everything in America, why would you get on a plane and fly 24 hours to go and see a golf course on the other side of the world? What, is it going to be better than Augusta National? It might be as good, but so that tyranny of distance for Australia in particular, probably a little less so with Ireland, gives us a certain sort of an attitude. It's very easy to be unfair on Americans. America is an amazing place and Americans are amazing people, um, but it is the very best and the very worst of everything can be found in America in a way that I don't think you see in other places. It's uh, – but, you know, there's a whole Korean golf tour of players who never travel either, and they don't have to. And if you don't have to, why would you? I do think we're a bit unfair sometimes on, on some of our American friends in the, the cruises we make about them not being global players because they really think it would be very easy to just go, why would I? <laughs> what's what's the what's the need for me to travel beyond going over to play in the Open? Which they didn't do for a long time, as you well know. <laughs> it was Arnie that sort of started all of that. So, yeah, I – yeah, I uh, – America is a really interesting place outside of golf. And in terms of golf, it's an even perhaps more interesting place because whether you like it or not, and we see this with Liv and the PGA Tour, and I understand and get all the complaints about people outside America and I've been making those same complaints myself. I think the PGA Tour has a responsibility to have a more global view. But the truth is, it is the golf market. The DP World Tour could not achieve what the PGA Tour has achieved if they had the entire market to themselves, except America. It's it's not possible to do. That's where the money is. It's where the sponsorship dollars are. It's where the interest is. There has to be a peak place to play somewhere. And in golf, it is always going to be America. Now, that doesn't mean that the PGA Tour doesn't have a responsibility to expand the game beyond its own borders, which they don't do enough of. Uh, but... The reality is always going to be that American golf is going to be the most dominant golf.
0: But, but I guess we also forget that it's a members' tour run by members, essentially. Yeah, turkeys don't vote for and, Christmas, uh, do they? <laughs> and, and going back to why would you? Why? Why would we? You know, like we don't have to. That's right. So we're not. Going
1: that's right. To. And that's not. And look, that, that's not all players either. There's a lot of. Uh, Saw Zach Blair about five or six years ago down here playing in the Australian Open. No fanfare, nothing. Came to play in the Australian Open because he wanted to go and see courses on the sandbelt, because he had an interesting golf course. There's a lot more of that than we probably give players credit for. But if you're in the top 15 players in the world, really, you think you've got some... <laughs> Royal Melbourne, I'm sure it's a great golf course, but no shortage of great golf courses that I can go and play... An hour from home, why is there a need for me to go to the other side of the world? Um, I can sort of understand that, you know. Uh, Rory's becoming more that way, I think. We see less and less of Rory, and we're going to see less and less of Rory outside the States with these designated events and and the way that's unfolding. Uh, he's, He's put himself in a position now of being the PGA Tour, as Logue would love to say, the titular head of the PGA Tour, and his commitments there are going to be Enormous. It's going to be very – I mean, he's always been criticised, as you well know, for not playing enough at home. He's always done a reasonably good job of playing globally. He's been to Australia a few times, handsomely paid for it. Talked about coming here to play the Australian Open at Kingston Heath a couple of years ago because it was at Kingston Heath, which is, to his enormous credit, pandemic ruined that, so it never happened. Um, But he wouldn't have done it altruistically. He's not going to come and play here for free. You'll have to pay him if you want him to play. So there's lots of issues. But if you're at the top of the game... And there's, the other thing is, there's so much, I imagine, goes on. I mean, Rory's his own industry, as is Adam Scott, as is Tiger. <laughs> They're an industry unto themselves, and their responsibilities are to more than just what we think they should do. They've got entire staffs to pay and you know, sponsors to serve and all of that sort of stuff. So I'm sure there's lots of stuff we don't understand about what goes on at the top of the game. But It's very easy to see the greed
0: as well no, don't pretend that's not there you know, it's it's funny you were mentioning the, you were commenting why would you that sort of gave me a bit of a flashback to something i was reading earlier on uh, matt Goggin had a post up on linkedin with a new picture i think of the first or the 18th at uh at seven mile beach um he's uh that's gonna be some some uh some venue oh absolutely
1: finished. absolutely and look and what a contribution to the game that's why I put him in a you know I put him in that category of you know, the Thompson Clates, Matt Goggin, and Jeff Ogley to an extent with his sort of talking and writing sort of on the game. That's a contribution way more than being a player. even if Matt had won that open that Stuart Sink went on to win, Matt played in the last group with Tom Watson that day people forget his contribution at Seven Mile Beach and not just the course all the time he's been on your podcast. He's been on the um, Australian golf passport podcast. We've had him on the thing about golf, which was less about seven mile beach and more about other stuff as well. But all the talk about it and the discussion and, and the insight into what makes him tick and what's made him want to do this project at seven mile beach and the way he's doing it hugely important to the game and hugely important to the game beyond the game. We trap ourselves in golf. We've got our own media, our own language You could be a golf administrator and go an entire 30-year career and never speak to a reporter from outside a golf publication that's that's a bubble that we live in and there's a whole world outside of golf and golf is starting to feel those pressures we talk about it on good good a lot with public golf in particular lots of people have no interest in golf and in fact would rather see golf disappear and we in golf, I don't think, really appreciate just how much of that there is and how precarious golf's position is. It needs to make its case. And Matt makes golf's case. And that's important.
0: Yeah, he's doing us some service. He
1: really is. And look, and for golfers, that golf course that's being built, is just, it looks just astonishing. I can't imagine it'll be anything but amazing to get. I might even pull out the clubs and go and have a hit at Seven Mile Beach at some point. Shock, horror. It'll be ugly. nobody will be allowed to take any pictures but but that but that then a little like barnboogle Jones and richard sattler and what happened there and how that unfolded with the two courses there the contribution to golf is enormous but the contribution beyond golf is equally important because matt's doing what golf needs to do he is engaging with the outside community He is asking people to come in he literally he's not joking he's going to have a rail outside the clubhouse where you can tie up your horse and come in and have a drink there's a a lot of horse riding goes on in that area, and that's what he wants. I think that's phenomenal. And I took great delight. Brandall Chamblee wrote something once about, you know, advancement and how important it is. You know, you don't tie your horse up outside the clubhouse anymore. And I took great delight in firing back a clip from the podcast where Matt Cochran said that's exactly what he intended to do. And saying, well, actually, Brandall," which was cheeky of me, and I didn't get much of a response. But, but that's really important. If there was more of that in golf, golf's position in society would be much safer. Much safer, but it's not safe. Not, not in lots of places around the world, including here in Australia
0: and, and even in Scotland. Lots of public golf courses are getting closed, which is tragic. You've written a bit about that. I know you're probably talking. Or you're probably thinking somewhat along the lines of Northcote in uh, in Melbourne and uh, more park, yeah, in more city. park, which is a
1: as a you'd be mad to look at
0: that. Whether you've got an interest
1: in governance, say, oh, well, this is a business we should close down. That's effectively what some people are saying. Moore Park is one of the busiest golf courses, quite possibly in the world. Sun up to sundown, middle of Sydney. It's maybe five kilometres to the centre of the CBD of Sydney, and it's a completely public golf course with a three-tier driving range. That is just. Constantly busy.
0: Essentially situated in Centennial Park, the yeah,
1: a couple of hundred hectares or whatever it is of parkland, which is completely surrounded by. And yet, you have these otherwise intelligent people who, for whatever reason, have decided that golf is an easy target, and golf has made itself an easy target to take potshots and say why is that reserved for just the use of the few and uh, these sorts of specious arguments. And I've written a lot about that, and I've taken those arguments apart and all of it, but I've only done that in the golf media. You know, these things are being reported in the mainstream media. You know, Clover Moore gets herself in the Sydney Morning Herald talking about it. I write a piece rebutting that. Well, guess what? The Sydney Morning Herald readers don't see that. Nikki Gemmel, who's a, a brilliant author, very successful author, sells lots of books. She decided to take a shot at golf for some reason one day, you know, and it was the absurdity of the things she wrote. I just took it apart piece by piece. But again, her audience in The Australian, where her column appears, is both national and way 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 bigger than the people who read my column on Golf Australia who are all golfers. So all the people reading her thing, lots of them are non-golfers and they take those views on board and just go oh yeah that's right Golfers for rich people and they she was saying stuff along the lines of you know well i don't care they can have it out there in the suburbs but you know leave the leave the city green space for us and it's just really nonsensical stuff and just as though everybody can afford to you know, wander out to the suburbs to indulge their desire for golf. The thing about those arguments that really annoys me is it's just it's almost saying kids who grow up in the city don't deserve the opportunity to try golf. Let's take it away from them so they can't even experience it. And that's whether you like golf or not. You know, it's an industry, it's a legitimate industry, and, you know, we think there's lots of things about golf that are good, but how can you just say, oh, no, you just deny people the chance to even experience it by just removing it from the urban landscape? That's just wrong. Um,
0: Anyway, don't get me started on that. How can we rectify that? I mean, how can we we do better, I suppose?
1: I wrestle with this constantly. We have to do better within the golf media so that the non-golfer who wanders into that space doesn't get attacked, and there's a lot of that. We do a lot of wrong stuff in golf. Somebody last year, sometime there was a woman who popped something up on the on Twitter. You know, golf dash a game for the rich, which was clearly a troll and taking a shot. Um, but the attack, the attacks on her, calling her an idiot, and then and then really getting personal, as happens on Twitter because it's a toxic cesspit. We know that um, that doesn't help. You know, um, calling people that you don't agree with idiots and imbeciles and lefties and um, greenies and commies, and you get a lot of that in golf when these discussions come up. That, there's a place for being somewhat combative when you're standing your ground at some point, but it shouldn't necessarily be your opening salvo. I mean, that's that's a line of thinking that says, well, violence is often the answer, so let's try it first. That's, <laughs> it's not the way you want to, to do that. Uh, I don't know what the answer is. I wrestle with it. First step is to be better within the golf media uh, and try to educate golfers themselves about... What it's going to come down to really for public golf is golfers learning to share that space. Uh, Far too many golfers think about their local public golf course as their space. And if you're not playing golf, stay out of it. And that's just not going to fly. Whether you agree with that or not, pragmatically, that's not going to fly in the future. That's why I loved what the plan they came up with for at Northcote, Bill Jennings uh, and the people he worked with was fabulous. It was a, listen, we want to invite you in to share this with us. Not stay away, you're going to get hit by a golf ball. You can't come anywhere near the place. There's been some awful things happening. Golfers screaming at people who've inadvertently wandered onto a golf course. and We all understand where that comes from, but it doesn't help to get involved in that. So what's the? I don't know if there is what the answer is. It's, there's no golf writers left at mainstream daily newspapers anymore, as far as I can tell. So there's nobody within the... Within that environment, um, speaking for the game, or very few, and I know how daily newspapers work. You know, man bites dog. Cells, Royal Sydney here going through a restoration. Gill hands their DA called for a whole bunch of trees to be removed.
0: It's easy fodder. Whipping the trees out, unbelievable.
1: Look at all these. Look at all these rich blokes up on the hill. Men, mostly white men, all multimillionaires. You know, just destroying the landscape so they can whack their little white ball around the
0: field. It's easy. I heard they were getting rid of all of the, that eastern suburbs, uh, Banksia scrub as well, burning it and getting, just getting rid of they it. They are the doing thing. that, but you don't read
1: that. That's not a, that's not a headline, chain. And I get that. I worked in daily newspapers. And there is something to be said. You don't just let the members at Royal Sydney ride roughshod over the environment because they've got money. But by the same token, there is a responsibility to report fairly. And objectively, and much of that gets lost. We have a media these days. If you're in the newspaper business, it's very hard to sell newspapers. So we've gone away from reporting the news in the bits of the paper that weren't about shouting to just having newspapers devoted to just shouting. And that's one of the problems that we have with golf. So whilst that's true, you know, the, what they're doing, holding Royal City into account is important, but there's got to be, and this is what Matt Goggins said. I really liked what he said about this issue. He said, there are a number of people who are not engaging in the discussion in good faith, and it's re- that would make life so much better for everybody. If Clover Moore wanted to engage in the discussion about Moore Park Golf Course in good faith, that would be you would get a much better outcome. I, I have invited her to come on the show several times on the podcast. I've sent her links to have a listen to the show that we're not a shouty gotcha you know, mad screaming at her, you crazy lefty wokes. I'm not interested in any of that. The Venn diagram of what Clover Moore thinks about the world and what I think about the world overlaps in way more ways than it doesn't. But on this particular issue, a sensible discussion would be good. And she's not engaging in good faith, if I can, if I can put it that way. So She's just taken a position. She wants to push that position and and Matt Goggin's right when people aren't engaging in good faith it makes it very very difficult very difficult so and then you get into the world of politics and my goodness who wants who wants to be part of
0: that that's madness you know but back in the dim distant past Rod about pod- podcasting past that is you had something called the book club on both IC golf and actually uh twenty 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 apparently. The second of March twenty twenty was your last. Uh, Not my last hey 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 oh, hey.
1: Let no. me just distance myself from this completely. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's low, exactly low. right.
0: Uh, sorry, but that's it. No, that's it. So so I've already made representations to him to no effect. So that the return of the book club on Good Good would be would be very welcome. I'm hoping that if I kick you, you might <laughs> kick him. I've okay? kicked him a few times. So I'm yeah. punching. Uh, I don't know if I'm punching down or punching <laughs> up. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> so, so, as I said, just to let you both know, the last episode of this type was aired on the 2nd of March. It's almost an anniversary, an episode almost an anniversary of, isn't it? Yeah. Hey. Yeah. On a, an, an episode, no, no less, on the world at this of golf, which actually I would recommend people listening to hosted ably by Derek Duncan, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So as I said, you might just pass the info on to Log that your listenership has been waiting nearly yeah. three years to listen to the next episode of the book club. And in fact, he announced yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Weatherwood and Simpsons, yeah. yep. the architectural yep. side of the He ago. ordered it. Fucking three years later, and we're still he, waiting.
1: not only mentioned it, he ordered the book, waited several weeks for it to yeah. arrive, insisted that the others he was going to have on the show do the same, and you're right, quite. Logue's a thinker, not a listener. You know, you can tell him what you like. He's not listening. Uh, I'd like to see it come back to and I think he would too. It's, uh, or, as you well know, the, the thing about podcasting, this isn't hard, the sitting and talking into the microphones and listening on the headphones and having a discussion. This is the fun part of it. Organising all of that is time-consuming, and it's more time-consuming than people realise. I'm in the podcast business, and I, know, I can tell you that for a fact, that that's the part of it. That's not so much fun. It's like the practice that the pros put in before they get to go out and have the joy of playing in the tournament, whatever it whatever it might be. So it's partly that. Now, if I'm not mistaken, we should share some of the blame around here. Did not Proctor and Jim Hartzell threaten to start a book club podcast? Whatever happened to that? Did,
0: did uh, there was some time. Did they talk did they do that. it?
1: I, mean, I think there's a space for. I it. never
0: there's I, a space I, for it. Yeah, yeah. I I I haven't no. seen it yet. That's not to say that <laughs> there's not room uh, for two. That uh, <laughs> that it hasn't. Uh, but look, m- maybe they're in in beta testing. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I'd say I'd say Stephen is pretty thorough. If nothing else, true. That's very true. He'd be researching microphones.
1: Uh, hello, know, Stephen, hello, if you're Stephen, listening. If you're listening, I uh, do put it this way. I really enjoyed the episodes of that that I did. I don't really have the time to do the book club episodes anymore. And I'd like Loeb to do it. Partly, to be honest with you, because I think you know a bit more Loeb wouldn't hurt. I'm not sure if he's. I think he worries a bit about the hosting gig as well. That wouldn't naturally be his his thing. I don't know. He'll, he'll probably disagree with that if he hears this. Uh, I think there's a. They were really enjoyed. We always got fabulous feedback about it. And well, we've kind of veered into this. This is one of the joys of podcasting as a medium. And this is a golf example of it. People think about podcasting as a broadcast industry. They think of Joe Rogan. How do I become Joe Rogan? Well, that's the same game everyone played in the '90s with trying to be Seinfeld. Hasn't changed at all. Podcasting's just a different delivery method. The the beauty of podcasting is it can actually be the opposite of that. Now there might only be a thousand people in the world really interested in a book club podcast about golf books, but if you produce it and those people get joy out of it, it's worthwhile. The cost is not in money; it's in time. So you can create something that really enriches people's lives, including your own for next to no financial cost and it has a worthwhile and wonderful place to sit. You know, I get people come through the studio here all the time and you know, Joe Rogan is the name that always comes up. Oh, yeah, you know, we got this idea we want to be like Joe Rogan. That's that's an age-old game of the media. It's got nothing to do with podcasting. The podcasting I'm interested in is small to medium businesses with not huge budgets but for whom podcasting can actually really add something to their business. And that book club idea is a really good example of that and how that might... You might be able to get a sponsor for a golf book Club podcast from, I think, Abe's Books used to do a lot of books. and I don't know whether they still do, but they might pay, you know, I don't know, 100 bucks an episode. They sell three books. They make 250 Do you see what I'm saying? You can do something valuable without a huge audience. That's what appeals to me about podcasting. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, Shane. Now, it doesn't really matter, but those that do are getting something out of it. I mean, you don't stumble across podcasts is the other thing. You need to seek them out and actively engage in downloading and listening to them. So, as a form of media, they're much different to most others. I think, anyway, that's
0: just off the rails. That was a little plug for my business, I guess, really, <laughs> more than anything. For sure. SydneyPodcastStudios.com.au. <laughs> that's right. Very ordinary website. Yeah.
1: Mention Firm and Fast for a 10% discount. I'm only kidding. Do not, you're not getting a 10% discount. Mention Firm and Fast all you like. You're not getting a 10% discount.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I, I, uh, uh, uh we just went off on a tangent there.
1: So one of the reasons I stopped playing golf also, by the way, was starting the studio. But Work things changed a lot, and having your own business is, as I've discovered, it's a full-time gig and then some. <laughs> Not a lot of time and opportunity for golf when you run your own
0: business. You produce and edit various uh, other people's podcasts as well, yeah?
1: Oh, way more than... I do more non-golf podcasts than golf. I, in fact i co-host a podcast about wounds and wound dressings show that's exactly the correct response but it's fabulous fun uh and it's work
0: i don't want this to sound uh, derogatory <laughs> but I, i'm assuming you might as well be looking into a hedge and uh, you're obviously using a script
1: i have a co-host who's a doctor That's how it happened. She started as the host. And after a few episodes, she said to me, I'm not coping with this being the host thing. I'm used to answering the questions. And then she looked at me and she said, would you co-host it? She's English. Would you co-host it? And I said, well, for a fee, yeah. She said, oh, that won't be a problem. Okay, well, now I'm a co-host of The Wound Doctor's. Which, which works very much in the world that our uh, mutual friend, Matt Mollica, who's a podiatrist, she's a podiatrist as well. And a lot of the discussion is okay. about things that touch on podiatry. None of that to do with God. That'll have bored the Gulf Audio Census. But yes, it is, a, it, is a, it is a topic of some mirth around the place that uh, I ho- co-host a podcast. As I often say to my other half, I'm practically a doctor. <laughs> I've got a medical podcast. I'm practically a doctor. <laughs>
0: And, um, yeah, obviously with all the co-hosting on the wound show (laughs) and the other golf stuff, do you have time to listen to podcasts? Are you a podcast listener? Uh, I am. I do
1: some recreational podcast listening. I do enough work podcast listening here at work. And what I tend to uh, veer towards is comedy stuff, particularly English comedy. I listen to, some of your listeners might be familiar with, Andy Zaltzman hosts the news quiz on BBC uh, Friday nights on Radio 4, I think it is. Over there. I listen to the news quiz, but he's got a whole network of podcasts uh, under the banner of The Bugle, uh, sort of political satire and whatnot. Fabulous show. I listen to that every week. Alice Fraser, who's part of that team, does a podcast called The Gargle, which is a similar sort of thing. So nothing, not much golf related. I do listen to Derek's show quite often. I listen to Firm and Fast most times. You're one of my cooking companions because it's a long podcast. So if I'm going to cook something and I'm going to be in the kitchen for an hour, an hour and a half doing that, in go the AirPods and I listen to it. But most of my podcast listening is work-related. And I, the other thing, that, a bit like golf, when you start working in it, you listen to podcasts differently as well. So I'll find things that annoy me if I'm listening to a podcast and I don't like the sound of this or the edit that's been made there. Not a, not a, it's a bit, bit too critical, not a great way to necessarily listen. But I do a bit. That's, that tends to be the bulk of my podcast listening is, is sort of political satire. Because the UK is a clown show at the moment. It's just, wow. <laughs> What's happened over there the last five
0: or six years is just extraordinary. Pass the parcel.
1: It's, well, you had a prime minister that lasted 44 days. Mm.
0: Boris is on manoeuvres yeah, again in terms of trying to yeah. fly keeper.
1: Yeah. Uh, and uh, look, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that he'll be back. Let's not go down that path. I'm sure the golf people aren't no. interested in any of that.
0: No, no, absolutely. Listen, yes, sir, yes, sir, let's, let's get back to, to present day. We've recently had the first event of the Live Golf Series in Malacoba Mexico, straight from the, from the frying pan into the fire yeah, rod. Yeah. <laughs> there are two more events in the USA this month, I think, um, and then they're off down to your neck of the woods, to the Grange Golf Club in Adelaide on the 21st to the 23rd of April. Looking at Liv's website, it appears that the Adelaide event is sold out mm-hmm. and tickets may re- indeed resemble hen's teeth. Yeah. There seems to be plenty of interest in the Liv product from Australian golf fans.
1: There really is, uh, I think. Cam Smith has a lot to do with that, I suspect. He's kind of the man of the moment in world golf and certainly in Australian golf. He's a bit of an Australian golf hero at the moment. There's a mixture also of uh, there's an awful lot of anti-PGA Tour sentiment. Here in Australia, there's a real narrative in this, that the PGA Tour ruined professional golf in this country. 15, 20 years ago, we had a schedule of tournaments, 10 or 15 pretty big tournaments. We've now got two, the Australian Open and the PGA. Uh, And a lot of people blame the PGA Tour for that. The PGA Tour have had a role in that happening, but they haven't been completely responsible for that. I mean, part of the reality for Australian professional golf is we just can't afford it anymore. We've been priced out of the market. There are not corporations here who've got the sort of money required to put on a PGA Tour event. So, so there's an awful lot of that driving it. Uh, an interest in the new, Australia is sports mad also, which helps. Um, the weekend or the week that the Live Golf is on, that whole, I haven't looked into this completely, but there's a whole raft of, this is an, a, a South Australian government sort of project is to bring people to South Australia for events. So around that time, there's an entire round of the AFL where every game will be played in Adelaide. They also have, um, I think it's called WOM Adelaide is a music festival. There's a comedy festival. On. Now, I'm not sure if all of these things are around the same time, but they're building these events where you go for the golf, but you can also go to the music and you can go to, the, to this or to an AFL game. So there's, a bit of, there's an element of that. But, yeah, look, I'm a bit surprised. I mean, they're, they're saying it's sold out. I don't know how many tickets they had. But I come across people quite often who are really pro live. I find it surprising personally it does you be I mean I'm be indifferent towards but pro-live seems an interesting position to me to take um but a lot of it I feel is a sort of anti-PGA tour there's a really strong sense of anti-PGA tour here in Australia amongst golf fans and I do think that live has also they've had some success in convincing people who might not otherwise be interested in golf to go and have a look because it's not just golf there's music and I don't think they're actually doing anything innovative. That doesn't mean that you can't market the notion that you're doing something innovative and convince people of it. Uh, so, yeah, look, I'll be really interested to see, you know, I can't assume they've made that up. If they're saying it's sold out, you've got to assume that it's sold out. You have to take them at their word, which is interesting. Um,
0: no, I actually went on, on the website and you can't... can buy a ticket. It, 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 that's, that's what it says, anyway. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, I mean, the the contrast between, I think and forgive me if I'm incorrect in saying this, I think the South Australian government paid Liv to bring them to Adelaide. Oh, no question they would there, there, yeah. there was a competition. Yeah, no question they would and yet, and yet the contrast is ha- they have difficulty finding half-decent golf clubs to bring Liv to in the States. Well,
1: two different markets, obviously. Of course. The, the, the truth of professional golf in Australia for the last couple of decades is it has been paid for by governments, and I don't see that as a sustainable situation. The President's Cup has always been funded, essentially, by the Victorian government. In fact, even Tiger's visit here in 2009, the famous one that you mentioned to the Masters, just before his world fell apart, all of that paid for by government money. It's not paid for by private money in Australia. There's, just, there's no corporations that have got the sort of cash to splash around in that way, or they certainly wouldn't choose to do it on a one... I mean, golf's problem is a sponsored event. This is what Liv's done to change golf. This will be the ultimate thing. We're seeing it with the designated events. We're going to go from a sport of independent contractors, which brings loads of problem. If, you, if you're in the tournament organising and um, running space or TV, and you can't guarantee your stars, which you can't in golf as things stand, then you've got nothing. Even to the point of, okay, you, you pay Rory to come and play the Australian Open. Well, if he misses the cut, he misses the cut. There's nothing you can do about that. He can give half the money back or you can have whatever arrangement you like in place. But Saturday, Sunday, he's not there. And the tournament suffers. I and mean, Golf has always suffered from this, particularly outside America. And it was McGinley who said it to John Huggan on the thing about golf podcast. That's the biggest change that Liv will make to professional golf in the future. It will no longer be an independent contractor sport. You, you, know, you don't eat what you kill. You'll be a paid contractor like a footballer. You'll have a guaranteed income, and that's what these designated events that the PGA Tour is now talking about with no cut and all those sort of things, that's where that is ultimately heading. And look, as polar opposite to what we think of professional golf and has always thought of professional golf as being, you can see the sense in that as a product to take to market. And that's different to golf and the things that we love about it But as McGinley said, if a sponsor came to the European Tour board and said, listen, we've got 50 million bucks, we want to put on a tournament, um, will Rory play? The only answer you can give is maybe. We don't know. We'll ask him. Then the sponsor with 50 million bucks says, well, I'm going to give you 50 million. You're not even going to guarantee Rory's going to be there? I'm going to take my 50 million and put it into something else. That's a genuine problem for golf. And that's what this sort of idea solves. Now, Whenever you gain something, you lose something. Golf loses something through that as well. Do you end up losing Bob May versus Tiger at the PGA? Tiger versus Rocco at the US Open? Well, you don't at those tournaments, obviously, but do you lose some of those storylines week in and week out? I mean, there's too much golf is the main problem. There's too much golf and too many golfers, but markets are driven by demand. Not supply, and if the demand is there for it, the PGA Tour keeps finding people with the money to stump up and sponsor these things. Well, that told you that the demand must be there for it; they'll keep putting it on. So, look, this will be a. There's going to be seismic shifts in professional golf for the next five years, I think. And I think where it'll end up is something that much more resembles, if we're lucky. It'll resemble F1 with a whole and MotoGP, where the whole travelling circus picks up and moves from one venue to the next every couple of weeks and the very best players, injury aside, are always on show. And we'll end up with one event in Australia. You'll probably get two events in the UK. One might be in Ireland from time to time. One in South Africa, one in Japan, and 10, 15 in America because that's where the, the numbers are. That's what I think will happen. With golf and the players will be basically content. It's the premier golf league idea. I mean, if if the PGA Tour had just gone with that, we wouldn't have this huge schism in the game with Live and what's happened there. I, I don't, f- I don't feel like Live is feasible. I don't think they're doing that. I don't think that's sort of their goal, and they don't have the names to do it. I don't see them getting them. Um, it's not impossible, I suppose, but you know, my argument's always been. Uh, two arguments. If you think the PGA Tour have been bad stewards of the game, and they have, don't kid yourself that Liv is somehow going to be better. This is not an altruistic exercise for them. They're not doing this for the good of the game or for the joy of Australian fans to be able to go and see Cam Smith, which they can't because the PGA Tour doesn't come here. And the PGA Tour can be fixed. I don't know if that's true of Liv Golf in terms of the issues around, you know, mean, it always comes back to that very issue, you know, you can hear the whataboutery already, but the source of the money. And the truth is if you sign with Lib as a player, you sign to become a direct employee of the Saudi Arabian regime. And if you sign on to work with the Live Tour, that's what you sign on for. And that's different to governments being involved in dealings with them. That's a, it's a decision at a personal level. You can make those decisions. That's for people to decide, themselves. I wouldn't do it. Um, but lots have. But no doubt – I don't know why people seem to think this is so surprising. There's no doubt that all the changes we're seeing on the PGA Tour have been driven by the emergence of Liv. There was no reason for the PGA Tour. Why would you fix something that not only isn't broken but can't be broken except by something as irrational as Liv Golf coming along? If you'd suggested 10 years ago in a PGA Tour board meeting, you know, we'd better make some changes because one day there might be – an oil state decide they want to take over golf, and they might dip into their fund and pull out a couple of billion dollars to do it. If you'd suggested that in a PGA Tour meeting, you would have been rightly laughed out of the room, as if, as if that could ever happen. Yet that's exactly what's happened. So it's no surprise they've been caught off guard. Uh, They've been the alpha dog for forever, and there was no indication they weren't going to be the alpha dog anymore, and yet here we are. So it'll be really interesting to see what happens but at the end of all of this just always remember professional golf isn't golf it's only a small part of golf we write a lot about it and it it occupies more space than it probably should in our discussions and thinking and writings and whatnot but it's really a tiny part of golf the guys out there this morning standing on the tee now you know about to hit their provisional because they're not sure if it went out or not (laughs) the fence on the right of the first at mangrove mountain that's golf much more so than professional golf, you know,
0: with the live stuff, um, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan, a real fan of live, but that doesn't mean I'm a I'm a PGA tour fan either. No,
1: which is all too often the assumption. Yeah, you,
0: know, you, you, you apparently you're not
1: allowed to be anti-live and anti-PGA tour. <laughs> if you, yeah. it's that if you're not with us, you're against us. The old Hitler line. It's, it just makes everything binary, which is just stupid, really stupid. Anyway, sorry,
0: I interrupted you. Have you watched any of it?
1: Uh, I think I watched. I watched like uh, half an hour or something of one of the first three or four events last year. Uh, To be fair, I don't watch a lot of golf anymore (laughs) either. Uh, I do watch some, but not a lot. And I just, my takeaway was this doesn't look any different, really. It's guys playing golf and guys you've seen playing golf before. I mean, I I couldn't see any discernible difference between it and the PGA Tour. Certainly for the casual viewer. Dustin Johnson was playing golf. Well, last year, Dustin Johnson was playing golf too, just on the PGA Tour. So the product itself, now, if they wanted to innovate and create a mixed teams competition or do something really interesting with women and men and you know, something like the TPS, but on a grander scale, they'd have my attention. But there's a, lot of, there's a lot of faux innovation. Well, we let our players wear shorts. Well, okay, great. We only play for three days. Mm, okay. We've got music on the venue. Mm, okay. Uh, none of it's innovating. The product itself... The base product is golf, you know, and there's, there's a real fear in golf that that's not enough to hold people's attention. There's been a long period of golf marketing where, you know, governing bodies and PGA's have tried to market everything but the golf. It's almost like golf itself is toxic and you've got to be about everything except golf and that's, I think that's dangerous and
0: does so the game of disservice. Just to that the point, Rod, do you think uh, Golf Australia with their new approach to the Australian Open in 2022. Covered that brief.
1: It's at least innovative. I'm in two minds about whether it's appropriate for
0: national opens. Maybe just to explain to people that uh, perhaps aren't aware of the format that they tried this year. They had a, um,
1: what do we call it? A, like the Vic Open. The, the men and the women both played over two courses, uh, all four days, two separate trophies, two separate titles, but in a mixed field. Which by the way is my preference for the mixed events that are of any importance. The the European Tour event that Lynn Grant won for last year won last year, for example. Um I'm not in, so much in favour of that, the same sort of thing that the Sandbelt Invitational does. I just don't think there's a an ideal way to deal with the disparity in particularly in distance and styles of game between men and women, to have them play for the same purse, which is not to say it shouldn't happen. I there's a certain level of tournament where that it's fine for the Sandbelt Invitational, but for a yeah, uh, let's call it a proper tour event. I'm not so convinced. But that's not the end or the I might change my mind about that one day. I'm not sure. But the Australian Open model where the men's and women's Australian Open happen concurrently is the word I was looking for. Thanks for not helping me out there like the Vic Open. It's at least innovative. Uh, there was a lot of issues around. There are logistical issues about not only putting the tournament on with two courses, etc., etc. And in Sydney, that's going to be the two courses are a couple of Ks apart. And anyway, yeah. that's going to be all sorts of issues issues around that logistically in terms of getting players for both of those fields because of the way internationally the women's schedule works versus the men's schedule there's no right or there's not really a right time for all of those players to be involved you know actually
0: traditionally the women's was uh
1: february February. yeah. yeah that would start the year uh there's issues about that for men's for the men's fields um by then, guys from Australia have gone off overseas to try and get their tour cards there. So there's issues about that. There's issues about that whether you have it concurrently or not. So that's uh, that's part of it. But the one thing, the overriding thing, which will decide this, is something that James Sutherland told us on the Good Good podcast. We had a whole episode of Good Good you know, sort of devoted to everything that kind of didn't work about the 2022 event, which was maybe a bit cheeky of us. But he wanted to come on the next week and rebut some of that, which he did. The point that he made that I think was by far the most important that people really need to listen to is this. The sponsorship market wants mixed tournaments. It ticks some social boxes for them as sponsors. Selling the Men's Australian Open and the Women's Australian Open as separate separate events means you may not actually be able to sell the Men's and Women's Open as Australian events. The marketplace wants the game to showcase the ability which it can do for both men and women to share the stage at the same time. And ultimately, that's what will drive that decision. They have committed to it. It's going to be this way for the foreseeable future. It's now up to them to make it work. It's a it's a big, bold move that they've made. I don't know their reasoning for making it in the first place. My instinct is it may have been a little bit of a hurried decision. They got a lot of accolades for it when they made the announcement, which they would have loved. They got a lot of great feedback about the tournament itself from people who watched on TV overseas. That doesn't mean that there are not issues about, about it going forward. So, look, we'll see. But the fact that the market wants that, that will be a huge dictator of of what happens and whether that concept survives. I'm not sure, if, I'm, as I said, and I'm not sure, I think a national Open is maybe more important than that I think having... I'm somewhat in agreement with Scott Hend. Who got ripped for suggesting that he wasn't going to play the event because he didn't agree with the format? But his point was, he thinks the men's Australian Open and the women's Australian Open both deserve their own weeks, and there's merit in that. I think there is, but if the commercials don't, add right, and the sponsors aren't but there for that's it's exactly well, right. People assume that there'll be an Australian Open if a men's Australian Open if we went back to it. The truth is, there wouldn't have been an Australian Australian women's Open. It would have been back in the wilderness had we not done, had it not been done this way. People assume that the Men's Australian Open is not under any threat. Uh, Don't kid yourselves, people. There's no guarantees that somebody would step up
0: to sponsor a men's only Australian Open.
1: No guarantees at all.
0: It was co-hosted at Victoria and Kingston Heath, right? Yes, which is
1: probably what, in inverted commas, saved it this year was two extraordinary venues, magnificent golf courses, and they really let the golf shine. It was fantastic. We mustn't forget the All Abilities were a part of that as well, which is hugely important. Um,
0: But that's a side discussion about something different, I think. You were on the ground yourself in attendance.
1: I was on the ground in attendance. I didn't get to go out on the course very much. I tended to spend most of my time in the media, something I've criticised other journos for for years and years and years. But for all sorts of reasons, I didn't get to go out and watch a whole lot of golf. (coughs) Pardon me. I actually did my thing about golf interview with Mary Thompson that week, uh, Peter Thompson's wife, which was fabulous. What a woman. So I had a few other things boiling away. Um, I think there's a case to be made for the Australian Open to be permanently in Melbourne, or certainly for a, a period of time that lets it rebuild. It's in trouble, the Australian Open. The one thing Australia has that the golf world wants is the sand belt. And... We locked the Australian Open into Sydney for 15 years, and I'm not sure how sensible that was. I understand why. The major sponsor, the government tipped in a bunch of money, the major sponsor only flew out of Sydney at the time, Emirates, um, you know, that was where their big international, they didn't want to be necessarily hosting a golf tournament in a city where they they didn't fly from it. For all those reasons, you can understand all of that. They're all pragmatic. But if you look at golf and what the golf world wants, you put any event on the sand belt and people around the world tune in. I'm not sure we pay that enough attention. I know it's difficult to juggle, but I'm not sure if we pay that enough attention. We could build, the Vic Open is a fabulous example of letting something organically build. It started in 2012 in suburban Melbourne at Woodlands and Spring Valley from memory. That first year had its issues with that. They moved to 13th Beach, regional area. Lots of people would have said, I'm never going to work an hour and a half out of the city. That's madness. You know, Nobody's going to turn up. Well, seven years later, co-sanctioned with the LPGA and the European Tour because you didn't just chase that immediate success. That tournament built, and had it not been for the pandemic, it was probably about to become in some ways a victim of its own success because <laughs> they were facing a, an issue of it's kind of gotten to a point where can we still stay at 13th Beach? But all of that aside, they're all good problems to have. The Australian Open maybe needs to go into a phase of that, I think, where if we said, right, we're going to do 10 years on the sand belt, you've got the golf world on board now after 10 years. The Australian Open gets some of its cachet back, and then the title itself can carry the event, moving it around to lesser courses is the wrong way to put it, but do you know what I mean? To places
0: that aren't as high profile as the Melbourne Sandbelt. I think there's merit in that, but I could be wrong. You follow a good deal in the local pro and amateur scene there in Australia. For international listeners, who should we be watching out for over the coming years from Australia and, and New Zealand as well? I, I won't pretend to be an expert. I certainly don't follow it as
1: closely as I used to. There's one young guy down here, still an amateur at the moment, called Geoffrey Guan, who looks to be as good a player at this age. I mean, he's been finishing top 10 in professional events down here. Now, That's not
0: they're, they're not the majors but he's been finishing top 10 in professional events. He won quite a few Porter's Adidas series. He,
1: he did he? indeed. Ewan Porter has huge raps on him and he's a pretty good judge, Ewan. He knows what a good golf game looks like. He's the one to me that stands out. We've got a couple of young professionals who David Micheluzzi is one. He'll be playing Europe next year or the DP World Tour uh, who's a, a a fabulous time. Had a bit of time in the wilderness. The pandemic really hurt a lot of the guys here in Australia. They just had almost no options. Elvis Smiley, who Clates caddies for, he's an extraordinary talent um, and a really exciting golfer to watch, which is a real bonus, I think. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, sort of amongst the women. Stephanie Bunky has a fabulous golf swing. Um, it doesn't, doesn't play as well as she should, it would seem, at this stage. Uh, we've probably got... We've got less good women players than we probably should have here in Australia. Um, Kirsten Rudgley actually is one from WA who's now on the Ladies European Tour who's a, who's a seriously good player. There's another young girl called Justice Bozier who will play in the Augusta National Women's Amateur this year who has had some real highlight moments and rounds this year on, in some of the TPS events. For those who don't know what the TPS events, it's a series of events called the Players Series that's been developed by the PGA down here. Men, women and elite amateurs and juniors all in the same fields, playing together. So they put the juniors, the leader of the junior event, in the final group on Sunday with the pros that are leading the tournament. Um, and they've just been fabulous. They tick all the boxes. It's, it's, it's great for the players. The competition is fantastic. They're playing in regional parts of Australia quite often, which is fantastic. It's where the golf should be going. It's on TV every week now here in Australia, so you can spend your Sunday afternoon getting to know Players like Micheluzzi, Brett Coletta, Stephanie Bunky, Justice Bozio, which we haven't been able to do here in Australia for a long time because the golf just wasn't on. There wasn't golf on to be on the TV. So even though it's lower-level golf, it's golf to watch and get familiar with these people and the storylines building. Like, okay, I saw that guy last week. Oh, that Laurie Flint, didn't he shoot 60 at Bonnie Doon? And here he is. He's bobbed up again on the leaderboard here at the New Zealand Open. So there's a lot of really good things happening with that. And that's, I think, a fabulous example of that organic growth. That was an idea kind of born out of Ogilvy and Clates during the pandemic. They had a bunch of this thing. They just called it the game.
0: game yeah. And that's what they yeah, did.
1: Yeah. Hey, who's a good player? Doesn't matter whether you're a junior or an amateur or a man, woman, who's a good player? Right, there's a bunch of us good players. Let's go to Victoria and have a bit of a money match between us. And then sit around afterwards in the bar and talk about golf and Jeff can tell you how he won the US Open and what's involved in being on the PGA. Tour. Th- those experiences for those players you can't buy. Not just the playing, there's the, the watching Jeff Ogilvy up close. You know, He still hits some extraordinary golf. He's playing quite well, actually, this week in Puerto Rico, if I saw.
0: I saw he was on – He was yeah, it was that last week he was on the leaderboard earlier as Pebble well. Pebble Beach, he
1: played pretty well. So, yeah, there's a bit of fighting the old dog yet. Well, for a 19, 20, 21-year-old kid who's just turned pro, and that's a whole world that you wander into there that's got nothing to do with everything you've ever seen before, that's priceless. To be able to spend a couple of hours with Jeff Ogilvy and then to listen to him talk about what's involved in being a touring pro. The, the TPS, I'm the first one to kick the PGA and Golf Australia and administrators when they get things wrong. You need to be the first to give them a huge shout out when they get it right. And this TPS series has absolutely got it right. I cannot find a fault with it.
0: I really can't. Uh, wasn't it two of the boys in Golf Australia came up with the idea, yeah?
1: Uh, I'm not sure. I think it might have been the PGA. I'm not sure. It Do- okay. doesn't really matter. I mean, they're nameless and faceless when you criticise them, so they can be nameless and faceless when we give them a bouquet as well. I think Nick I think Nick Dasty and Kim Felton were really instrumental in
0: bringing it along. They were, they're the two names. I was they're, thinking at, them, yeah. they're at the PGA, I'm sorry. Two really lovely guys. Beg your pardon. Yeah. Sorry, boys. At the <laughs> if listening. you're listening. I beg, beg your pardon, miss, uh, it, m- miss uh, misidentifying uh, you. Nah. You know, funnily enough, in terms of uh, uh, people from Australia to be watching out for, uh, something that came via Australia, a blast from the past, the 2015 PGA Championship winner Jason Day, seems to be back. Doesn't get home very much, but he appears his back appears to be better, or certainly a little bit more fixed. Feel like it's uh, to me, and I'm not again. I've not followed it closely. It feels to
1: me more like his attitudes better. I think something happens when you really reach the top of the tree, and particularly a tree that's as difficult to climb as the world golf, and to become the world number one, and all that sort of stuff. It's one of the most amazing things about Tiger. He just kept getting up and doing it every day. He never seemed to have any questions about what it is or what (laughs) – he was just driven constantly. The nonsense that comes with it, uh, there's got to be a point, Shane, where you've made so much money. What's motivating you? (laughs) If I'd made $2 bucks in my life by now, I would not go to work. Do you know what I mean? Two million is not the figure. Do you know what I mean? If I had 10 million bucks at the bank, you wouldn't find me at work. I'd not be motivated to do anything but sit around and enjoy my money. That's not how these people are wired. It feels to me, is no question Jason had some physical issues with his back and whatnot, but when he was at the very top of world golf, he had a certain attitude and a certain way of being. I'll never forget Mark Leishman telling me this. I interviewed Mark Leishman. I said, you know, there'd be a lot of people that say, Leish, that you've kind of underachieved. And he said, ah, oh, that might be true. He said, but people don't really appreciate what's involved in getting to the top of the mountain. He said, uh, I've been at barbecues with Jason when he was the world number one. And, you know, somebody's offered him a second beer and he said no. And Leish said to me, I'm not that guy. I want to have the second beer. I'm just not prepared to give it all up to get there. Jason was, Rory is, Tiger is. There's nothing wrong with being Mark Leishman and wanting a second beer. It doesn't mean you're going to have 100 beers, but th- that's the lengths that these guys go to to get there. And the other thing is the lines are so fine at that end of the game. I mean, you're talking uh, 10 shots over the course of the year, 10 shots over the course of a year of tournaments could be the difference between being the world number one and the world number t- 25, 30, 40, 50. It's an incredibly... Difficult game. We've been been spoiled by Tiger and the likes of Annika and Lydia Ko into not realising just how hard the game is outside of those super special echelons of play. And they really are. They're super special. I was thinking about this the other day. Lydia Ko won the Canadian Open at the age of 15 with 19 of the world's top 20 ranked players in the field. Think about that. A schoolgirl from suburban New Zealand Beat nineteen of the world's top twenty players, and we, like we have been with Tiger, for for years, it just becomes a ho hum. Well, yeah, of course, you just expect that. It, it really, <laughs> it does a disservice to the extraordinary achievement. And here she is, you know, twelve years later, uh, still sort of at the top of the game. So yes, I, I. I see uh, some really good, consistent play from Jason, which suggests to me that, yes, um, I do think he's sort of on the way. Will he get back to number one? Don't know. There are very few players. I think Harrington said it best on – whose podcast was he on? Might have been on thing About Golf with Huggy, and he said, you know, players get sort of a three-year window. It's a really interesting theory. You go back and have a look. He said, apart from the true greats, most players will get a three-year window. Harrington had his own three-year window where it just, that's, you make hay while the sun shines.
0: He was talking about that tipping point between um, naivety and experience. And if you know too much, you know too much. You can never get back from that. That's right. And there's something, you're almost better off not knowing than knowing. Yes,
1: of course. And that's what happens. You get to number one and you find out. It's what happened to David Duvall, wasn't it? He won the Open and he went, Mm. is this it? I was kind of expecting something else.
0: The chase is more fun. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, and that, which is, again, what makes Tiger so extraordinary. And people were staggered when they read in Hank Haney's book that, you know, when Tiger won after he was married and the first major he won after that, Neilan was like, well, hey, let's go and party, you know. Jesper always partied if he won a tournament. And was just said, we don't do that. This is what we're supposed to do. Get on the plane. We're going home. <laughs> there's, and there's a sadness Are they getting the joy of that? Of what they've achieved, I don't know. I don't know. But we've been spoiled by Tiger in particular um, in this game. To do what he's done in this game is just, you know, we should be dropping our jaws constantly, <laughs> In just in memory of what he's done and what he's achieved. You won't see the likes of it again, not in our lifetime. I don't. Certainly, John Ram is doing a pretty good impersonation the last couple yeah, of weeks. The last couple of weeks, yeah, that's right. Last couple of weeks, Rory's done very good impersonations for periods of months at the time, as has Jordan Spieth. None of them have done 15 years of it. That's what he did.
0: You've rammed your crosshairs there recently.
1: Uh, Well, just, I get it. If you've spent all your time and all your energy and a whole lot of um, time in the gym getting as long as you possibly can, hitting the golf ball as long as you can, it'd be easy to lose sight of the big picture, especially if you play golf for a living. You don't expect golf pros to have a particularly large prism of viewing the game through, necessarily. Because they're immersed completely in it, and they're in that competitive mindset of they've got to win. But yeah, he said some things about you know how far the ball goes, and that's all fine, uh, which I just don't agree with. I think it's a it is a genuinely huge issue for the game, and it taps into every aspect, not just professional golf. You know what? If they want to just take all the rules away, let professional golfers do it. Fine, do that. Make a game that in well, it already in no way resembles what's going on at Mangrove Mountain on Saturday.
0: Free show. Yeah, that's
1: right. You know, <laughs> if you want to do that, do that. That's okay. I wouldn't be interested in watching it, but that's fine.
0: <laughs> and while you're out, take some performance <laughs> on drugs. Just, you know, you just, just let it all hang out. We,
1: we wouldn't be the first to recommend <laughs> why don't they just have a
0: Drug Olympics?
1: <laughs> let them see what they can do. Let them go. You know, why not? Why not? And, and there's an element of that.
0: <laughs> Blinky, the three eyed Yeah, fish. that's right.
1: <laughs> Straight out of The Simpsons. Um, yeah, exactly. But for the game more broadly, you know, there are guys hitting it on the road up there at Mangrove Mountain today who couldn't have done that 15 years ago. And that's going to keep happening. And that's an issue. So that's going to be an issue for Mangrove Mountain Golf Club at some point. So nothing to do with John Rahm and whether he wins this week or, you know, his strokes gained or this, that or the other. That's all he's thinking about. And I get that. I understand. But it doesn't mean that his opinion has any great weight beyond professional golf. Um, and I, the whole point of the column was, you know, how much should we listen to professional golfers about some of these issues that aren't about how to play the game really well? Because that's really all they can do. That, you
0: know, we sh- we shouldn't, but but in, in general, people probably do because they don't maybe have they, they they kind of assume that John Ram knows more about golf than they do, which is why at some point
1: in his career, he'll probably get hired to design a golf course because mm-hmm. he's John Ram, and we've seen a lot of that. So it brings us almost full circle back to appreciating the Mike Claytons, Matt Goggins, Peter Thompson especially of the world because they are professional golfers who understand the game well beyond that. And Thompson in particular, a five-time Open champion, his wonderfully simple takes on the game beyond professional golf are hugely important, I think.
0: Yeah, time to plug that book. What's it called? Steve? Ah well, hang on. It's, it's a like, hey, like, hey, 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 hey. yeah. Break thank you very break much. Break, In fact, break. you better. Listen, we'll come to that. As a as a self-confessed golf tragic, as I sort of we, we touched upon very briefly earlier on, I understand that you don't play any golf anymore. It's not. An, if I'm it's done. not an indelicate question, I'm sure listeners are wondering why not. Predominantly,
1: this business. Um, Now it takes all my time, but I think I might have been looking for something. I lost a bunch of the joy of playing the game. I got a horrendous case of the chipping hips, which is humiliating, embarrassing, and really takes a lot of fun out of the game. You don't have much. I was never any good. I could never play any. The best handicap I ever had might have been something like ten. So you know, I could never play. And when you start to lose the joy of actually playing, there's a real element of, and I get this for people who don't, and there are people who just don't like. I was like, why am I paying to do this? what is the point? Uh, and so when you don't enjoy it... And look, I'm not saying that I'll never go back and play again. I may or I may not. I'm not sure. I can tell you that I'm a lot older and a lot less flexible than I used to be when I when I did play and I stopped. But that's the main reason. And, and in conjunction with that, I've found something else that takes my time, and it's this business and building a business. And so even if I hadn't sort of stopped playing... I would be in a position of n- not being able to play anywhere near as much as I wanted to because I simply don't get the opportunities with with doing what I'm doing. So they kind of went hand in hand. But the true answer is the yips.
0: <laughs> you, you need to get stuck into uh, some – what's his name? Carl uh, Morris has a whole CD for people that – Right. Ha- had that particular. It's, it's more the putting yips than the chipping yips, but I guess it's the same thing in terms in terms of. Uh, look, I, I'm not a I'm not a, a sports psychology expert, but he does have one. Um, I
1: interviewed him on the thing about golf. Fantastic. I, I will just say this though, that's not what necessarily keeps me out of the game. I think I probably would have gone a period where I stopped playing because of that, but then I would have been drawn back to it. I genuinely don't feel any great desire to go back and play at the moment. I may do one day, but. Um, and it's not the chipping result. I did a bunch of chipping at my old studio. where I had a long hallway, and I think I may have even cured that. I don't know. Uh-huh. But uh, that's not what keeps me out of there. That's what saw me probably stop, but it's not what's kept me from playing. It would yeah. be unfair to suggest that. So,
0: Given your last answer, this next question may be a little redundant. However, it is a recurring penultimate question, as you know. And assuming that you were still playing golf or perhaps go back to playing golf – What five courses are on your bucket list and why have you put them there?
1: I'd love to play the composite course at Royal Melbourne because there's something about the opportunity to play a tournament course, which I think is special, and particularly a special golf course like Royal Melbourne. I've played the west course at Royal Melbourne. I haven't played the east um, but I'd love to play it in that configuration of the composite course, and partly because not a lot of people get to do it, so it would be a bit special, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a tournament venue, really. It's not. I don't care which iteration of the composite course it is, by the way. If people are going to start riding in, and you do want the Australian Open or the President's Cup of this year or that, don't care which composite it is.
0: Or the original one, indeed, back from the whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: Yeah. Because Royal Melbourne, to me, a bit like St Andrews, is a special place. It's spiritual. Every time I go to Royal Melbourne, I feel something almost physiological, that it really is a
0: very special place. Place. Um, Do you think that's the spirit of Mackenzie and and Markham and Crockford and Russell? Pro- and-
1: Probably in some way, but I can follow and have followed you know, high-handicap golfers around Royal Melbourne, watching them play in an event, and enjoyed it almost as much, not quite as much, as following Tiger around there in the President's Cup in 2019, which might be one of the most special things I've ever seen. Because the course, it doesn't, this is almost... Unheard of, but it doesn 't matter the golfer or the level of the golfer. it asks them questions appropriate to them that make the game interesting both to play and to watch. You can have I could play Royal Melbourne with the Yips because I 'd never need to chip there's no need to there's always an option. you know I could always put it from 40 yards off the green or do you know what I mean? So it asks every golfer it doesn't matter who you are every question. I love Clay's idea that it's, if you're a good player, it's the hardest course in the world to shoot 65 and the easiest to shoot 75. You know, not the easiest. It's, it's, it's incredibly easy to shoot even par around Royal Bourbon, but it's incredibly hard to go under par. It's a, it's a really, it's a, it's an incredible place. It's almost like a Bermuda Triangle. Something happens to golf at Royal Melbourne, and <laughs> it just changes for everybody. So, so Royal Melbourne Composite Course would be there. I said sort I of played the West Course, and it was fantastic. But the Composite would be something special. Uh-huh. Seven Mile Beaches on that list, even though it's not finished yet, mm-hmm. because I think that will be something special. And again, it's not just the golf. I think what Matt's and the team are building down there. The golf course is going to be amazing, but the golf facility and its place in
0: is going to be even more so. I think he's a gentle soul. and I think the Seven Mile Beach ethos is just going to be just chill, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. You want to take on some hard shots? There's some hard shots here. You Fine. don't want to take them on? Don't take cool. them on. There's no problem. No, no, Put it. I don't, know. Some days I-
0: don't mind the horse there. I side. <laughs> <laughs> it's something club has.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, Royal County Down. Uh-huh. I have forever regretted that we didn't get up to uh, up north in, in Ireland um, to play there and seen the pictures, the videos, heard people talk about it. Pardon me. You'd be mad not to have Royal County down on your bucket list. Macrahanish, if only just to play the first tee shot. <laughs> there are very few courses in the world, I think, that have such a famous single shot. It's a cape, cape shot, yeah? It's a cape shot, but
0: everything I've seen of everybody who's been there, uh, talks it's essentially across, yeah. across the beach to the fairway. Like you can you yeah. cut off as much of the beach as you want?
1: That's exactly right. Or as much yeah. you can try to cut off as much of the beach as you want. I'm well, not sure correct. how that goes for for most people. What's that four?
0: That is four. Four. But you, you, again, uh, it's a loose five, right? You it's a loose. You, yeah. It's a
1: loose five. I, I, I'll tell you this: I won't get to six. But uh, e- interestingly, I do not have a desire to play Augusta National. I don't know why. Um, Mixed feelings about Augusta and the whole tournament. And that sort of. I love the tournament, but uh, there's a lot of stuff about that, that.
0: Ron Morissette did say that Royal Melbourne is uh, the golf course that Augusta wants to be. Wants to be, yeah. And certainly when
1: I was at the Asia Pacific Amateur there in 2014 I and mean, there was a lot of Augusta members around, the look in their eyes suggested he might not have been too far <laughs> off the truth. They were, uh, they were pretty impressed with the place. I think, you know, if you're a golfer and you don't want to play at least the 16th hole at Cypress Point, you're probably doing it wrong, so I'd put Cypress Point there at uh, at number five. It looks to me like the term I fell in love with, it might have even been in Thompson's book a few years ago, which is sporty golf. No, it might have been Robert Hunter's book. Sporty. Cypress Point looks sporty to me.
0: Yeah. I love that notion. You interviewed Christine Fraser recently and brought sporty golf up. But I don't think she really understood what you were talking about.
1: No, she didn't. And I, 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 if I had the chance to do that interview again... I would do it differently. I watched the thing yesterday, I don't know whether you saw it, a video uh with her that Schwab put out for some reason. Really interesting stuff. And it dawned on me, which it didn't when I was talking to her, and I've spoken to her more than once, we've interviewed her more than once, but it really did dawn on me. In fact, this is gonna come out wrong. She's actually got very little interest in golf course architecture in a sense. She's much more interested in a very a much bigger picture of golf. And so the details of penal golf versus strategic golf not that she doesn't understand, I just don't think she's into it, and she doesn't like the conversation to stray down that way because it's too narrow. Even golfers, lots of golfers don't care about that sort of stuff. Um, so she's remarkable. But yes, I don't think she twigged to what I, what I thought, what I thought the point I was making about sporty yeah. golf. But yeah. I think most golfers do. We've all played a golf course where there's, you can feel it. It's sporty. A lot of the golf in Ireland, I find, is very sporty. You know, big dunes and those kinds of things. There's a real – one of the things Royal Melbourne's got is just scale. It's grand. It's this grand, sweeping venue. It's a, it's, and you have a reaction to it, I think. That's where the sporty comes
0: from. Right. There are your five. A fine collection of five, it must be said. So, We're very lucky in golf. There are so many places you
1: could choose from. There's a hundred other courses you could pick from, isn't there, really? And there's no, <laughs> exactly right. the no wrong answer. That's exactly right. There's no wrong answer.
0: Um, so last up, uh, as you know, my guests are asked to recommend two books to augment any golfer's library. So you've already held up one of them, which is A Life in Golf by Peter yeah. Thompson, yeah. which is a collection of his
1: newspaper columns from the age over the years. And
0: is... If uh, if anybody... The last time I went looking for, for a copy, I do have a copy myself, but it was out of print, uh, Slattery slattery Media, uh, obviously online. So um, But any, anyway...
1: Yeah, oh, I hope they do another print run at some point. You might find something on eBay or Secondhand. Or if you can get it, it is just... It's that good, yeah. It really is, and it's its one of those books, and I love books like this. You can just sit down and open it up to any page. There's no It's not like a narrative where it's a novel and it starts at the beginning and goes in. Open any page and there'll be something interesting about the game that he's chosen to write about, from Tiger Woods to Bunkers to... The one piece that it doesn't have in it, I don't think... And it's one of the favourite things that he's ever written. He did a review of the Australian Golf Club and he talked about the water being next to the greens. It's, it's a very American thing, like fins on a Cadillac. <laughs> it's how he described having water as it's next to the greens at the Australian. I've never been able to find that review again. Uh, but I think that's just a beautiful line. So he writes beautifully about the game and in a way that makes you think. You might not always agree with him, but it makes you think. Um, and am I allowed to nominate books? Others have not. I don't know whether anybody has. Uh, nominated The links by Robert Hunter. I'd be surprised if they haven't.
0: That has been nominated, but yeah, certainly you can nominate that That one again. there, or... That reinforces the fact that it's a good book. That,
1: or, or in fact, um, Shackleford's first sort of... I can't remember the name of the, the course design book for, for beginners.
0: Grounds for Golf.
1: Grounds for Golf, I think, is yeah. one that's great. But I'm going to recommend people... And yes, Shackleford's he's a friend of mine, but he's Isn't also a very interesting writer about the game. His a new one that's coming out in the next couple of months, which is... Golf course architecture for
0: normal people, yeah. For normal people, yeah, and I think that'll be fantastic. You've had an advanced uh, copy of that. I haven't. You but haven't. Clates
1: has no. Clates has, and that tells you something about the pecking it Does crew, and the I, sta- I saw of the, sta- I st- of the state of the game crew.
0: <laughs> and I saw. I saw somebody else that had an advanced copy of that. Matt Malika. She posted Matt Malika, indeed, and yeah, actually Molica, somebody yeah. else again had a. I'm not sure who it was. Had Probably a picture everybody on Twitter.
1: Else. Yeah,
0: I think that was Matt. Matt Matt posted a picture of on Twitter. Maybe it, he doesn't know me from a bar of soap, but he does know you. So,
1: yeah, Well, it, it tells you it tells you everything you need to know about me, doesn't it? He mm-hmm. sent Clates one, but uh, but not me. But I think that'll be. I love the the, the idea of that. Uh, all of the all of the interest almost that I've had in golf course architecture for the last ten years has been about how to try to pass that gift on to others, without being evangelical about it and putting people off. I don't have kids, and I know what it's like when people tell you how much you're missing out on because you don't have kids. It's like, yeah, well, you know, that's okay, I've chosen this. And so you don't want to be that person about golf course architecture to other people, but you do want to somehow uh, allow more people to experience what a gift it is to have an interest in golf course architecture. I think it really is a gift. It, It adds to the game elements that if your only interest in your golf is your score, it's going to be a very narrow and predominantly disappointing uh, time in the game I think because those things never live up to what you want um, the interest in and to me golf course activity is the most interesting thing about the game by far it's what separates golf from the others a football field is a football field, a golf course is not just a golf course they're an integral part of the playing of the game at every
0: level I've already taken up far too much of your Saturday morning so look I'm very very grateful for your time and for drawing back the curtain ever so slightly <laughs>
1: Well, you can see me, which the others can't, so that's probably a good thing for them, yes.
0: Before I let you go, you might tell listeners how they can keep tracks in your writing, podcasting, and musings in general. Okay, so it's
1: not all that difficult. Golf Australia magazine on their website. Every Monday I put up an opinion piece. Some I like more than others. One of the problems with uh, having to produce something every week is that not every week do you have something you feel that uh, you really want to necessarily talk about, but it generally tends to be pretty fun. So that's uh, the Golf Australia magazine, golfaustralia.com. That's about the only place I write anything these days. You can, of course, tune into The Wound Doctors. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) If you go to... uh (laughs) <laughs> don't miss it. <him. laughs> <You go. laughs> don't miss it. <him. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> Latest episode out yesterday. Uh, yeah. Talking Golf Network, which the website's a bit problematic at the moment, and you and I have had discussions about how we might go about fixing that, but of course it comes to this issue where apparently I might have to spend some money on it. I don't like that idea. So the Talking Golf Network, talkandgolf.com has all of the podcasts that uh, I'm involved with. There's the thing about golf, which is we do for Golf Australia Magazine. I do one, Huggy does one, I do one, Huggy does one, generally speaking. Uh, they're just in-depth interview shows with people. The Good Good podcast is mostly weekly with uh, Logue, who we've mentioned a couple of times, and recently Jimmy Emanuel from Golf Australia Magazine has joined us. I'm on that.
0: I'm a. I'll be a. Sorry, do you have him in the box? You're pointing and looking across was, the studio. It's obviously where he usually sits, but it, it was almost really if you have in the box. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why. I Just naturally was drawn to look at. There you go. Jimmy, I, Jimmy. <laughs> have you locked up? Can you can you hear that? Let me out, let me out. Um, that's where he normally sits, Jimmy. Uh, they've also started a new podcast, which I'm on quite a bit, which is a weekly sort of preview and tip show for all the tournaments around the place. And, of course, State of the Game, as you mentioned, with Shackleford and Clayton, which is Sporadic. Um, feel free to abuse me on Twitter because we don't release enough episodes. Plenty of others have in the past. It has no impact on the schedule, but it's often fun to read people abusing you for not releasing an episode. People will tell me, oh,
0: we and sometimes it actually, sometimes it actually turns into an episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So that's where that's where you'll find me. Should you want to, if you haven't heard enough of me yet, I do. Sometimes worry that I am a bit too. I appear in too many places. I And this is one of the problems with writing a column, Shane. I only have really about three ideas. And I've been column writing now for about five years. It's very hard to continually recycle those same three ideas. I've had a new thought since the noughties. So that makes
0: it awkward. You're also the master of self-deprecation, my friend.
1: Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah, maybe.
1: Anyway. So that's that's what we do. And you can find me on Twitter if you like under my name, Rod underscore more, I think. Until the next time, my friend. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shane. Most enjoyable. Go easy. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at FirmandFastGolf. Please continue to like, subscribe, and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.